Hello, lovely pod listeners. God bless you guys. Uh, once a year, we come to you with what we call our sustain campaign. Uh, this is where we ask our pod listeners to prayerfully consider being financial supporters of Woodland Hills Church, uh, which allows this ministry to be given away for free. Our goal this year is to have 400 people signing up as uh, sustainers, and we're at 313, so that, being, that means we need 87 more to, to, to meet our goal. And if we got to 500, you know, that wouldn't be a crime. That, that'd be a pretty good thing. So, so there's that. Okay, so we I thought this year we'd uh, each week uh, read a testimony. Uh, we get a lot of great testimonies. Here's an example of one. This is from Kathy in Nebraska, a Cornhusker. You cannot believe how your sermons have changed a friend of mine working her way through drug court. When I first met her, I asked her if she knew Jesus, and she answered, who's he? For the next several weeks, we listened through the Scandalous Love series together, and now she wants to hang a TV on her front porch and have the sermons running, running so her, her whole neighborhood can stop by and learn who God and Jesus really are. This is a person with an evangelistic heart. Willow Hills is such a help to me as I share who Jesus is with people through your podcast. Thank you for this ministry. Thank you, Kathy, for sending that in. We get, we get tons of emails like that, and it's honestly, it's humbling and, and such a blessing to be able to pour into people's lives and to, and to make a, a kingdom difference. Uh, for every person who signs up and sustain, uh, regardless of the amount that you, you, you commit to, as long as it's on a regular schedule, we have a family here at Willow Hills Church that is uh, willing to donate an extra $50. And, of course, you'll receive one of our awesome, world-renowned Podrishner t-shirts. So there's that. And this year only, we're offering also this special thing. For, for, every, uh, year, for every dollar that's committed, you'll get 10 times that many years off in purgatory. And purgatory is pretty much like hell. So, so that's really, we're not doing the indulgence thing. It was the best, it was the best money-making strategy the church ever, you can't do it. Okay, scratch the indulgences. But the t-shirt alone is worth it. So think about it, pray about it. Uh, just go to whchurch.com dot org slash sustain whchurch.org slash sustain thanks so much for uh, taking this seriously and now we're going to a q a time i uh, got some super great questions that were asked us and watch paul and i squirm as we try to answer that god bless so we have been in a series called sure and all during the series we have asked you guys to jot down your questions as they come up and text those questions into us, and you guys did an incredible job of that. You guys sent in so many questions. We have a ton of questions. We're gonna to try to get through as many as we can. Uh, in order to do that, we need Greg and Paul to come up here. Now we've got Greg, who's done most of the series, and then we have Paul to keep them in line. So welcome, Greg and Paul. We're gonna answer your questions, and have a good time. All right. Uh, look, explanation, uh, this, this Q&A is brought to you by Powerade. Uh, and I didn't mean to get this. I thought I was choosing water, but I got Powerade. So there's that. And this is so when Paul starts to cry because he gets stumped, this is... No, actually, it's, it's, it's allergy season. So I get runny noses, and I was going to just use Paul's shirt, but I thought maybe that would be a distraction. So anyways, we're good to go. Paul, you got your work cut out for you, okay? Keep Do I? Him in, keep, keep him in yeah, line. Well, keep him in line. Theological watchdog. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so are we ready to go? Bring it on. Bring it on. All right, here we go. Is the essence of faith a strong belief that can really be defined as absolute truth? Or is there a chance that what you have faith in is wrong? Well, it must be because Paul's wrong a lot and he still has faith, so <laughs> that answers that question. Okay, I, I, I think um, if I understood the question correctly, I'm not sure I did, but... Uh, yeah, the definition of faith would not be absolute truth. Uh, that's confusing kind of objective and subjective reality, or reality outside of us with reality inside of us. 
So it's like this. If, you, if, if I have faith in, in Jesus Lord, I, I, I believe that's an absolute truth. Uh, and by absolute, I just mean it's not relative. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's true whether I believe it or not. Um, but it's, it, it's always good to acknowledge that you could be wrong because you're human. Uh, even, no matter how psychologically certain you feel about something, it's at least logically possible you could be wrong, and, and it is humble to admit that. Because um, if, if you don't admit that, then you're telling the other person, if you're talking to somebody, that, um, that they have nothing to say to you, <laughs> uh, which isn't a, isn't a good starting point for a conversation. So, uh, yeah, it make a big distinction between your map and the territory. Your map is what you believe to be true. The territory is what is true. And what we're endeavoring to do is always to get our map to line up with the, the, the territory as, as much as possible. If, if, if that was the question you're asking. <laughs> well, I think it gets to the question, to what you've talked about is the nature of faith, which I think has been encouraging to us at Woodland in the sense that faith isn't having to be psychologically certain about right. something. Faith is, it's a, it's a covenant term of trust, right? Trust right. in Jesus. And so that uh, allows people to be honest about doubts while still having faith in Jesus. Right, right. Ask those questions. So yeah, faith is... Um, it, it, it's, the covenantal concept of faith, is, is, it's not the case that your faith is strong to the degree that you are free of doubts, which is the, the common, that's a psychological model of faith, and it's the common one today. So then people try to talk themselves into things, because if faith is virtuous, if that's what saves you, then doubt must be sinful. And so they try to avoid it like the plague. But the biblical concept is, it has nothing to do with how psychologically certain you are. It's, 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 it's are you willing to commit to a certain way of living? Uh, to walk this path, even though you're not certain. In fact, in Hebrews 11, all the heroes of faith that are listed there, they didn't get what they were looking for. Um, and so they couldn't have been certain that they were going to get what they were looking for because they didn't get it. And yet they're praised for having faith because they were moving in a certain direction. Okay. So in your reading of some of the Gospels that are not included in the Bible, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, do either of you feel that any of them offer information that should be added to the Bible? And follow up, do, does what they contain challenge your beliefs in any way? Your turn. My turn. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Uh, so then there was, it was Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Mary? Mm-hmm. But you could okay. Gospel of Peter yeah. or any of them. I mean, it seems like every few years, either some new book or movie comes out that will appeal to some other gospel than our four gospels and sort of make it seem like either these have been secret gospels that no one knew about until yeah. today or that they contain the real truth where ours is sort of the mundane, normal truth. Or someone asked me last week that they wondered if the church was conspiring to suppress them. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. they don't want the truth to come out. Well, and Dan Brown made a lot of money with that thesis, right? I mean, that's yeah. what Da Vinci Code's kind of based on. Um, so... That, that question's, I think, common in our culture with these, these fictional books. The, the truth about these other Gospels, and there are other Gospels. I mean, you can go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon, you can order a book called The Complete Gospels. I think there's 22 of them in there. And there's our four Gospels and then 18 others that were ancient Gospels that aren't in our Bible. So what's the story behind them? Uh, I think these two that this questioner asked are good examples, Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Mary. Um, both of those are real Gospels. We have um, entire manuscripts of them that are in the Coptic language, about 4th century texts, but they seem to be based on earlier Greek texts of about 2nd century. That's where most scholars date these kind of other Gospels, is mainly 2nd century. Why aren't they in our, gospel, in our Bibles? Um, pretty simply because uh, some of the tests that people were using for 
what got into our 27 books in the New Testament and what didn't were tests like this. Uh, is the book that's, that we're talking about either penned by an associate of Jesus or a direct associate of a disciple of Jesus, though it had to be sort of a, a first century phenomenon? Um, was this text widely used by churches all around the Mediterranean, or is it just a small group of churches that would acknowledge some book as, as sacred? And uh, those other Gospels didn't pass those tests. One of the problems is they're all second century or later, and so they couldn't have been connected to someone who directly knew Jesus. The other dimension is that a lot of them have Gnostic elements in it. And you can really tell Gnosticism pretty easily when you compare it to our Gospels. Gnosticism is sort of a, a I guess you could easily call it a, a Greek philosophical overlay on the Gospels. So to give you an example, the last verse of Gospel of Thomas is interesting. It says this, uh, Peter says, uh, Jesus, should we make Mary go away because she's a woman and women, women are not deserving of life? Jesus says, no, Peter, let her stay. I will make her a male like you males. Any woman who becomes a male shall inherit eternal life. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Say no, no, right? That sort of Gnosticism is not what we find in our Gospels or want in our Gospels, I would suggest. Jesus was the first. <laughs> I shouldn't go there. Listen, yeah, just, leave that. <laughs> just censor everything right Stop. now. Right? Trans. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing is that one criteria that they used was: uh, uh, is this book consistent with what we already have in the canon? And these books are, in many accounts, just not consistent with what you find in Scripture. And, and Gnosticism was kind of like a, this, a, like a, almost like an ancient New Age movement. They were yeah. very eclectic, and so they would take, like, like, like a lot of New Age people do today, you just kind of like take peace from everything and kind of put it all together. And um, uh, there's no reason to think that there's anything there that would be... I mean, sometimes they have faint echoes of what's in Scripture, yeah. uh, and, and so there you have a reason to think that's, you know, partially true. But otherwise, there's just no reason to think that, that, those, that there's any historicity to these things. And, and part of what's going on with some of the folks who are, who are pushing this thing is, like, the, the, the uh, 37 Gospels, how many are there? 22. Uh, tw 22. Yeah, they, they want to, like, make it look like our Gospels in the canon are just four that were just randomly picked out among these other equally valid or equally invalid uh, Gospels, and it's just, it's just not a good argument. So does what they contain challenge your beliefs in any way? Nope. Doesn't sound like it. No. no. I mean, and they're full of legendary stuff, you know, you got a giant cross coming out of the tomb and all sorts of weirdness. Yeah. Okay. This one's kind of long, so bear with me. So these two questions relate to Greg's sermon on the inspiration of the Bible. Greg's explanation of the Bible's errors, imperfections, and humanness sounds very much like his crucifixion of the warrior God theory. If that's his opinion, what is another explanation for those aspects of the Bible? What did Greg believe before he started thinking along the lines of God stooping and accommodating? And okay. then, why can't God be revealed in all of Scripture? Why are we limiting God's revelation to his work on the cross okay. only? Oh, this is why I'm here. Greg, answer the question. <laughs> right? Okay, look, I'll start with the second one. Um, uh, the, my, my, I think all the Bible is revelation. 
uh, I don't at all think that only the cross is revelatory. Uh, the cross is presented in the New Testament as, as being the supreme revelation that culminates and supersedes all previous revelations, but uh, it, it's all divinely inspired. I, I want that to be real clear. It's not like you know, there's some parts are inspired and some parts aren't. It, it, it's like this. On the cross, God revealed himself through the one, Jesus Christ, who bore all the sin and all the imperfections all that's wrong and broken in this world, he bore all of it, and, and, and yet that's the definitive revelation of God. And it's the definitive revelation of God not in spite of the sin and imperfection that Jesus bore. It's the full revelation of God precisely because it's through the one who bore all the sin and imperfection of the world. And so it shows that God clearly has no problem breathing through uh, People who are sinful and, and imperfect. He, does, he breathes through all of it on the cross. So it's all divine revelation. Uh, the, the question is, 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 how is it divine revelation? Is it the kind of revelation that we have on the cross where it takes faith to look through the surface to see God condescending or stooping down to, to, to this level? Or is it what I call direct revelation, like the teachings of Jesus? Uh, those are just you know, straightforward. Um, but, but it's all revelation. It's just a matter of, do you need a cross lens to see how it's revelatory? And I think with, with the imperfections and errors and, and violent portraits of God, that's where you need to exercise the same kind of faith you use towards the cross um, and look through the surface, the sin-bearing surface, to see God stooping to meet these, his people where they're at, using them just as they were. And the revelation is the condescension. The revelation is the stooping. But you only see that if you are trusting that God really is as, he, as he's revealed to be on the cross, and you're willing to use that faith to look through the surface just like you do when you look at the cross. So uh, what was the first question? <laughs> what did you believe before you believed? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how else do people explain it? Well, like for the violent portraits of God, the only option is to, if you're not going to um, uh, look through the surface of those portraits to see God you know, accepting people as they are and therefore as they believe these things, your only other option is to think that God really did those things. Well, that's your only other option. There are plenty of folks who just say, hey, don't worry about it. You know, that's, it's ancient stuff. That's just the way the Jews believed back then. And, and you know, don't worry about it. But I, that's not an option. Um, I can't imagine Jesus ever doing that with being so dismissive with any part of Scripture. It, it, it's all the Word of God. Um, and so if you take it seriously, then the only, only other option is to think that God actually did those things. And then you try to come up with reasons why God might have done those things. Uh, and that, when I started to work on this 11 years ago, that was my approach. It's like, okay, I'm just going to you know, try to find the best reasons why God had to say slaughter the babies and, and, and animals and everything that breathes um, and, and all the other kind of atrocious things that are ascribed to God in the Old Testament. Uh, and I got 50 pages into it, and I just couldn't do it with any kind of integrity. With the errors and contradictions and things like that, um, uh, typically, evangelicals will try to argue that, that they're only apparent, that they're not, they're not real contradictions, they're not real errors. Um, a good example of this is Gleason Archer's book. Uh, it's called An Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties. And it is an encyclopedia. I mean, it's about, what, 600 pages long. And he tries to explain all of these. And I, 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 I think that that's a good thing to do. Uh, if you can explain them, I, I think you always should give ancient authors the benefit of the doubt. And whenever you have multiple witnesses to the same event, you're going to have some discrepancies. And so you try to work those out. Um, I just don't feel... The, the, if you hold to the literal inerrancy of the Bible, then then you have to do that, and your faith hangs on it. And this is the thing that concerns me, is that if, if, if there's one error in that, then your faith can go down the tubes, and I've seen that happen. 
uh, with, with folks. So I think it's good to try to explain them, but, um, but your faith shouldn't hang on that. And sometimes I find that the explanations that are given are... It, it, I, I got to the point, and this was before I even started the, the book on crucif- cru- cru- writing the crucifixion of the warrior God, but it's like plugging a leaking dam, you know, where, like, okay, there's, I, I have an explanation here and here and here, and then you stick your toe over there, and, and, and you're just, at some point, you got to, like, say, maybe there's something fundamentally flawed with my paradigm that's leading me to do this, and they got to go through wild, you know, uh, gymnastics to try to account for things. Hal Lindsey, for example, to do, explain the discrepancy of the Gospels, he posits that the, the cock crowed actually six times before Peter denied Christ. And, and it, it, it's, it seems, I think those kind of, going to those wild specul- speculative extremes to try to account for some, some discrepancies, that weakens the whole faith. Like, if you've got to go that far to explain it, um, then, I mean, for a lot of folks, that's, that's too high a price to pay. So uh, that's why I, I, I just go with the, the idea that God is a non-coercive God. He doesn't ever lobotomize people, turn them into robots so that they will believe all the right things. He loves them and he uses them exactly as they are. Um, and, and even with their sin and imperfections. And that's no problem for God, obviously, because he, he breathes through the sin of the world on the cross. Uh, and, and so when Paul has a faulty memory, God doesn't coercively correct it. He just uses Paul with his faulty memory in, in 1 Corinthians 1.13, when he couldn't remember how many people he baptized, after saying that he didn't baptize anybody uh, except for Crispus and Gaius. See, that already is a wrong statement. Okay, wrong. And he corrects himself. Oh, well, that's right. I did baptize the household Stephanus, and actually, I, I forget who I baptized, <laughs> but take my point anyways. So, And, and, and that, that's the beauty of God. I, I think that's part of that, that reveals something about God. There's something important about God. We good there? Yeah, that's right. If it wasn't for that, God could never use Paul with all of his imperfections and stuff. So good news for you, Paul. Let's move along. Thank you. All right. Okay, so why is it that all the individuals that were inspired by God were men? For example, there aren't any books in the Bible that were written by women. There you go. Mm. Paul. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. Why did God only inspire men? And were any books in the Bible written by women. Yeah. Why, there any <clears throat> well, the word inspire, at least as we've been using it probably certainly last week and as Greg Theonoustos. Yeah. Um, God breathed. Is, we, we often use that around the, the idea of, of God writing the Bible, breathing his, his text. But um, really it has to do with the, the nature of the Holy Spirit, right? Breathe, it's the Spirit that breathes upon people. And in prophecy, um, it's prophecy, verbal prophecy, is a different kind of Holy Spirit work. It's not the same as writing the Bible, but it's still the Spirit. And so I want to remind the question answer here that um, clearly from Old Testament to New Testament, we have um, Scripture telling us that women had the gift of, of prophetic word. Um, Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, was called a prophet. Uh, Huldah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, right through to the New Testament, you've got uh, the four daughters of somebody who prophesied about Paul. You've got Paul talking about women having the gift of prophecy and, and using Mary. it in the church. Mary. Yeah, so in fact, God clearly does in Scripture often speak inspired words through women. That, that's just obvious, Old to New Testament. But I would even argue that in the... Why are, why are the texts mainly male? Let's remember... As Greg has pointed out often, God has to work with culture. He has to work with where he finds his people. And in the ancient world, it just was a patriarchal culture. 
And it just was the kind of place where educational opportunities were not usually afforded to women. Actually, not most men either. But if you're going to have an educated person in the ancient world, probably it's a man. And so God's working with the culture as he finds it. Um, I think that's probably why we have mainly uh, male voices in the text. But I'd remind us that we also do have female authors of texts in the Bible uh, in the sense of uh, Exodus 15 is, is a, a song of uh, Miriam, right? right, right After right. the Exodus, she wrote a song, and whoever the male author was inscribed her song in the text. It's part of our sacred scripture today. Same with the entire chapter of um, Judges. Judges 5 is all Deborah. It's, Deborah, it's called Deborah's song, and, and it's the whole text of Deborah. All the way to the New Testament, Mary and, and uh, Magnificat. Luke 1. Yep, Magnificat. Whole text set, section of Luke 1 is Mary's words. So at least three chapters of the Bible have female authors. So it seems it. to me that those churches that teach, teach that a woman should never have authority over a man, should never teach a man, they should skip those parts of the Bible because otherwise, <laughs> God forbid, a guy might learn something from a woman. Well, there you go. Shocking. Isn't that consistent? Yeah, absolutely. the <laughs> same. Thanks for answering, Paul. Yeah. I helped. <laughs> I don't get any credit. <laughs> Um, thank you guys for sending these questions in. Yeah, really um, good questions. Yeah, and, and just some of these, like you can see vulnerability, and that's yeah. really neat. So thank you guys. This particular question is from someone who says that they're an atheist, and one of their biggest problems with Christianity would be the existence of hell. Mm. Even, even if it is not eternal punishment, and it is just the extinguishment of souls, does that mean that when I die... I will just go to hell without a second chance because I doubt Christianity. I thought the Bible says that God is love and that God gives second chances. You've hmm. talked and written about hell, haven't you, Greg? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I, I just edited a little joke there. Um, so I, I, I take the, the person's wondering, uh, this atheist person is wondering, you know, why, why wouldn't he get a second chance after he dies? Uh, is he immediately annihilated? He, so he's accepting that it, kind of the annihilation view of hell, where God just withdraws the gift of existence. But, but here's the thing, you know, we, I think God's policy is take one lifetime at a time. Uh, we, we're not told very much at all about the details of what goes on after, uh, between death and um, uh, the, the resurrection and the ultimate coming of the kingdom. Um, and a lot of people have assumptions about that, but that's all they are is assumptions. I find indications in the biblical text that, that um, there's quite a bit that could go on between death and the, the, the final judgment. Um, and and that, that, you know, Paul talks about this is the time where we're, we're refined, uh, where our characters, you know, we come in the presence of God and it's like a burning fire that burns away all the dross that needs to be burned up, but refines all that can be refined. And, and God's still working with us. Uh, and you even find some kind of opaque passages where, you know, the, uh, uh, a, per, a person undergoes some punishment, but it's not eternal. Uh, you know, they, they eventually, uh, Jesus says, you know, make peace with your brother on the way, otherwise you'll be thrown in prison, you won't get out till you pay the last penny. But you do get out, so it's going to be harder over there. My own conviction is that all processes that are incomplete here, including our character formation, including the resolution of our faith, that there's a... a, a, a period where somehow, and we don't know anything about the details of this, but that, that it, gets, it gets completed there. And um, yeah, so, so I, I, I couldn't say that this person is going to be you know, lost. Uh, but I would say 
you also have this warning that, you know, like in Luke 16, where Jesus is saying, you, you have to make decisions on the basis of the revelation you have here. And, and um, uh, th- there's an urgency to that. Uh, it's going to be harder later on, and maybe not even possible later on. Whatever you do, you get good at doing. Our, our, our choices become habits, our habits become our character, and our character becomes our destiny. And so uh, I would encourage this person, don't rest on this idea that you're going to have a second chance uh, later on. Um, you're responsible for responding to, to what, what, what evidence you have here now and the revelation that you have here now. And, and so uh, while I'm not certain the person's going to be lost, I also would not encourage them to um, you know, coast and not take seriously the, the, the responsibility to respond now. Okay. So we've got a question about the Ark of the Covenant. And they want to know, um, is the Ark of the Covenant in Chapel's Vault on Oak Island? What's Oak Island? You don't know what Oak Island is? We TV show? Stomped Craig. I don't think it's in the Chapel Vault. I think it's in the Money Pit. <laughs> or the Swamp. Could be at the bottom of the Swamp. Uh-uh. <laughs> you know, I thought of this. It just occurred to me. Um, do you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? And there's that point where they, get, they go into this room and they have to pick out the chalice that Jesus, uh, of the Last Supper. And the first guy, thinking Jesus was a king, he goes for this opulent chalice and, and he takes it. And then all of a sudden he's incinerated, you know. And, and then the guy says, uh, he chose poorly. <laughs> so then it's Indiana Jones' turn and Indiana Jones goes and he ends up picking out the most humble cup, the, the, the one that's just rugged. Because uh, that's the kind that a carpenter would have had. And he chose wisely. And I say that just to say this. It goes to this, and this is totally off the topic, but it goes <laughs> to this whole assumption that we, we, we tend to think that God's supposed to show up with, you know, in, in, with a wow factor. And he would, of course, use a shiny cup, and he would have come in a Rolls Royce and you know, all that. And all those assumptions are wrong. And my whole point, I'm going back to my previous question, um, actually two questions ago, but uh, um, where people still do that with the Bible. We think the Bible should be this opulent, perfect book, but God's pattern is always to use the, the foolish and weak things of this world um, in, in accomplishing its purposes, and that's all I'm saying about the book. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rugged book. That's all nice. Good. Uh, the Ark on. of the Covenant actually was made of gold and was probably pretty shiny. Yeah, it probably was. Okay. Yeah. So. But it also killed people, so there's that. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is, I don't think. Um, I wouldn't spend much time. The Nazis were looking for it for they a while. Were, yeah, they were looking for it. It's, it's there's, a, there's actually a church in, in Ethiopia that says it has it. Really? Um, yeah, seriously. The 2009, one of the leaders said they were going to reveal it, and then on the day he was going, he said they decided not to reveal it, but he assured us it's there. So that, well, that's there, interesting. There it is. Um, has it killed anybody? The truth is, you know, once the Babylonian captivity happened, at least that, as far as I'm aware, that's the last kind of solid data, like, after the Babylonian captivity and Babylon took Jerusalem over and ransacked it, the Jews never said they, they had it after that. Um, just a lot of speculation. So I would not maybe it's a, waste time reading a book on it no? if I were you. Well, it's, this is a TV show, Greg. Oh. <laughs> Can we no, but there are books written about the Lost Ark and you know, go find it and maybe it's here, maybe it's there or all that stuff. Can so we all agree that Rick and Marty should at least like, figure out if it's there and then like, end the series? You know, it's like... All right, I'm going to read the next question. Please. Okay. Yeah, quickly. <laughs> so this person says, I have a family involved in an organization that denies the deity of Jesus. They use Bible verses to support this. 
For example, when Jesus himself said, the Father is greater okay. than I. Yeah. The quest, their questions include, if Jesus is God, was God dead after the crucifixion? If Jesus is God, who is he praying to? Yeah, it, it, this is, um, I, it's a good question. They probably belong to the Jehovah's Witnesses or yeah. one of those kind of yeah. groups. Uh, that's, but here's the thing. Um, what, would you, what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus is spoken of as being a complete, full human being in every respect, and yet being the embodiment of Yahweh, God incarnate. And that is, that's the way they speak about him. And, um, uh, and so you, you do find this weirdness where, on the one hand, Jesus says, the Father's greater than I am, and he prays to the Father, and he submits to the Father, and, and, and he doesn't you know, know who touched him, and he's got all these human qualities because he's a full human being. But then he also is referred to as, as, as fully divine. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was with God, and the word was God, and then the word became incarnate. And Thomas, after he sees the resurrected Lord, he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't get carried away, I'm just a prophet. Um, he, he accepts it as, as, as worship. Um, Romans 9.5, it says that Jesus Christ is God over all, blessed be ever, amen. He, who is God over all? And so you have a, a number of things like that. And that's why the church came together, and they, they just said, well, we have to believe that he's fully God and fully human. And, um, uh, and, and then you, you explain the activity based on kind of what it's saying there. When he's, when he's uh, you know, asking questions and stuff like that, he's, he's doing it out, out of his humanity because he really is a full human being. So this is God being God as a human being for, the, for this period of time. And, and so, yeah, God, God did experience suffering and death at, at the, 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 the crucifixion, though God, as God, didn't die, but he experienced death as a human being. And that's what I'd say for all those human attributes of Christ. Okay. I think um, a lot of groups, like whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or, or just some, uh, some folks who don't buy that, you know, there's a God who can break in with miracles into this world, more deist sort of approach. So, of course, God couldn't come in the flesh. Um, we'll often say things like, well, Jesus was a good man and a good prophet, but he couldn't have been God. So how did this whole God thing develop? Well, that was just... You know, Jesus was just a good Jewish prophet, but then it got overlaid with sort of Greek and pagan ideas that, you know, that, that humans can become God or something like that. So that was a later development of this early, just, I'm just a prophet sort of teaching. And, and the problem with that is, I think, you know, Greg and I did some research on this for our, our, our book, Jesus Legend, um, found that increasingly scholars are recognizing that the development of this view that Jesus really is Yahweh God embodied. Uh, it was a very early uh, phenomenon in the early Jewish Christian church. It wasn't some Greek pagan idea that got overlaid. Um, there's a whole school of thought now called um, early, uh, the um, New History Religion School, yeah. a group of scholars, Richard Bauckham, N.T. Wright, that are just demonstrating that if, when you read the Gospels through the very Jewish lens, you see these Jewish authors attributing to Jesus things that you could only attribute to Yahweh God in the Old Testament. It's just that we don't know our Old Testament so well. So they'll, they'll make a, a passage about Jesus. For example, walking on the water. I don't know what you think when you hear you know, about Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. But N.T. Wright and others point out that if you're a Jewish person, you know from the Psalms and from the book of Job that it says, only God can tread upon the seas. 
That's, that's Old Testament scripture. So Jesus doesn't have to quote this text. He just does the activity, and they start connecting this stuff, which we often miss in the Old Testament. So that's just one of... Uh, uh, dozens and dozens oh, of examples of this. Hundreds. Um, the, yeah, and, and the thing is, and this goes under the, the talk I gave uh, a couple weeks ago about either it's true, either it's, it, they're lying or it's a legend or it's true. Those are your three options. And this idea that it got overlaid with pagan legends, it's, first of all, it could not have happened in a Jewish environment like that. They were, they were all resistant to any kind of hint of paganism or a human being, a human being, being God. Um, and, and you don't have the time. You know, Paul's the earliest writer, and you've got a, a full-blown Christology there where, where Jesus Christ is fully God. And Paul ascribes these divine attributes to him and, and um, calls him God. And, and so you've got 20 years there, and he's passing on information that he got earlier. Like Philippians 2, most scholars agree, is, is a hymn that was sung throughout the church. And here he says that Jesus was equal with God, which is a way of saying God. You can only be equal to God if you're God. So, uh, yeah. a good book on this is uh, Putting Jesus in His Place yep. by uh, Robert Bowman and the other guy's name I can never pronounce. Ed, and it's like 14 syllables. Yes. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But uh, if, if that's a question you're wrestling with, I encourage you to check it out. It starts with a K. He's a good guy. Really good guy. He's a good guy with a weird last name. Made a lasting impact. We um, talk a lot around here about nonviolence and our call to be that. And this uh, question has to do with that. They're asking about um, Jesus cleansing the temple. And he's saying that he's heard many people use that story yeah, to yeah. say that Jesus approves of violence. Um, and this person is saying, but it seems to them that violence, violence isn't the Prince of Peace's character. But some translations like the King James Version make it seem as if Jesus strikes humans with the whip and they just really want help yeah, yeah, to try yeah. to explain that. They don't know Greek, so they want to know what the correct translation is, or how should they read that verse. Can I take it? Take it. Uh, okay. This is, this is one I've done a little bit of work on. Um, yeah, okay. It's important to understand that, that that cleansing of the temple was not a temper tantrum. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was prophetic theater, is what the term scholars use, where they're enacting things. And here he's fulfilling the prophecy about how when Yahweh comes, he's going to cleanse the temple. And... Um, and he's also forcing the hand of the Jewish authorities because he came there to get crucified. And, and this would do it. Now, if he had harmed any actual people, he would have been arrested on the spot. Uh, and he wasn't. He was arrested a week later. Um, so that itself is an argument against the idea that, that he used that whip on people. But the thing is that there's no indication in the text that Jesus was violent even to the animals. Um, it says, John says, that he went out and fashioned a, a whip out of cords to, to drive out the, 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 the animals. Um, and the ambiguity is that it says, he says he overturned the tables uh, and where the animals had been and then used a whip to drive them out. So it's not, he, John doesn't say to drive the animals out as opposed to the humans. So the question is, what's the them? But uh, um, the thing is, Throughout history, a whip's main function has been to, you crack it to startle animals to get them running in a certain direction. That, that's just, and so Jesus wanted to create a stampede, so he cracks the whip, and, and the animals you know, go running out of the temple. Uh, but there's no indication there that he, he whipped any of the animals, uh, let alone any people. And, and if he had done that, he'd be wide open to the charge of hypocrisy, because he's been teaching that you're never to do things like that, never retaliate, uh, love your enemies, and all that stuff, so it would have been very hypocritical. 
So how should our understanding of spiritual warfare affect the way we engage with people of other religions? I'll flip you for it. Let's arm myself for it. I don't want to embarrass you. You want to take it? <laughs> yeah, um, spiritual warfare and other religions. I think, you know, Greg and I both taught world religions at Bethel for several years, and we do a spiritual warfare class, so this is something we've... You'd think we'd have an answer for it. You would think so. So I'll, in love, let Greg answer the question. (laughs) Um, I think so. I think there's two dimensions here. Paul pretty clearly says in in, in Acts 17 when he's walking through the area of of Athens where all these temples are, and he's trying to find ways to to bring the gospel to people who've who've never heard of Jesus. What he does is he goes and he he finds this, this temple to the unknown God. And so he, it's, a, it's, it's a god of the Greek religion that, that Paul's looking for some way of connecting to so that he has an open door to find common ground with the Greeks so that he can then bring Jesus in. And he, he texts this idea of the god, the unknown god, whoever this is, and says, hey, let me tell you about this god that maybe you don't know. He starts bridging to Jesus. I think what Paul's doing there is something that he does also in Romans 2 where he He's basically saying that there's parts of the knowledge of God in every human being. God just plants it in us. He plants it in our consciences. We have a sense of right and wrong. He plants it in the fact that we can look around the universe and see, should dawn on us, that this is something that probably comes from a higher power. So there's, I think for Paul, common ground to be found with Christians and non-Christians with regard to there should be a supreme being around here. Now the question becomes, who is he? So there's that. But then when you bring the, and I think this is what I like about this question, there's also the other side, the spiritual warfare side. At the same time that God is trying to put his arms in a bear hug around everyone, there's an enemy who's trying to make sure that people don't draw those connections in a proper way back to Jesus and get Jesus as Lord. And so there's demonic entities, we believe, real, actual spiritual beings who are hostile to God and who want to damage your and my relationship with God and each other. And they involve false religions. They involve um, anti-Jesus sorts of ideas. And that's the mess that we live in, is a God who's trying to hug everybody and an enemy who's trying to keep at bay all people from God. And in that battle zone that we call the spiritual war, um, all of us are are Mm. involved in that. And it's in context, Acts 17. That's where Paul quotes some Greek philosophers where uh, he says that since, since the beginning, God's been working in, in, in the rising and falling of all nations uh, to get people to search for him and possibly find him, even though he's not far from any of us. And so uh, we, we can know that in every human heart, not only are they you know, made in God's image and have you know, kind of a natural ability to know God if their heart's open to it, but God is also working in every heart, trying to open their eyes as much as possible uh, to, uh, to find him. So I, I would say this, whatever else you do with this uh, uh, warfare and religion question, you, what you don't want to do is to say, uh, we have the right religion and every other religion is of the devil. Um, I, think, I, I think you'd agree with this, that, that what I find is in all religion, you'll find some demonic stuff and you find some God stuff, and I include in that the Christian religion. Um, uh, you look at church history, and there's plenty of, in fact, I would say the, the, the darkest aspect of any religion is found in the Christian religion, because not only did they slaughter people, but they did it in Jesus' name. 
which is, I think, far worse evil. Um, and, and what I belong to is not a religion, but uh, just a, a movement uh, called the kingdom of God. And so I, 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 I don't like to divide things up according to religion. Which religion's got more of God or less of God? Right, right. They all got a combination of everything. But let's talk about the kingdom. I like it. So after listening to the Share series, I am curious to know what you say about reconciling the conflicts that can arise between experiential truth, for example, personal spiritual experiences, and biblical truth found in the written word of God. This conflict has often divided the church. Whose truth is right? Mm. Mine. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> you humble man. You. <laughs> It's raising a, a great question, right? I mean, I, I think the only way anyone knows anything is one of three ways. Uh, experience, reason, and trusting some authority that we hold trustworthy. Or flipping a coin. It's, it's, well, and then there's the fourth option, flipping a coin. But outside of Greg's fourth option, I think the other three are probably the better ones to go with <laughs> on how we know things. And so when you have a trusted authority, let's say scripture in this case, and then that's uh, saying something that, let's say, you're not experiencing. Or maybe you've experienced something else that you don't find in Scripture. Now you've got two of your ways of knowing things, experience and trusted authority, coming into conflict. And that is one of the most troubling places we can find ourselves in terms of how, what do we do? How do we reconcile th these conflicts? Um, when it comes to the Christian worldview, Christians historically have always said, well, I, I can experience lots of things, but I'm a fallible human being. I'm a sinful human being, so my experience isn't perfect or my mind assessing it, you know, omniscient. Only God has that. Um, and on top of that, I'm, I'm finite and, and don't see all experiences. I only have my little sliver. But in the Word of God, God somehow, as Greg has talked about last week, inspired uh, this text. And so generally Christians have said, when it comes down to the Bible versus my personal experience, I've got to submit my personal experience to Scripture. Now, we still have to make sure we're interpreting it correctly and not just you know, misusing the Bible. But if we can interpret it correctly, that can help me. Uh, it, it can serve as a, as a criterion for whether my, my experience is matching up with God's truth or whether I'm being deceived. Because, you know, as Paul says, uh, you can have an angel of light turn up and tell you it's an angel of light when, in fact, it's the enemy. And so... That's, that's the, the, the balance and yet the pr priority that Christians have always given Scripture in that. I, I think it's really important. See, you know, our experience is all found in our brain, and we're all brain damaged. <laughs> you live in this fallen world. We're brain damaged. And, and so we can experience a lot of things as true that are, in fact, right. false. And so it's really important, I think, that we give uh, the... The central teaching of the New Testament about who God is and who we are and our identity and who we are in Christ, that we give that more authority than our own brain. And now begin discipling your brain by, by seeing, speaking and seeing and imagining what's true about you to start to bring your experience in line with the, the, the truth. If you operate the other way around, you're caught in a trap. Because if you're trusting your brain, well, then you don't have any higher... It's like drawing in quicksand. If, you, if, if you're not going to die, you've got to grab something other than quicksand. <laughs> if you're hanging out of the quicksand, it's not going to be any good. So you have to grab something outside the quicksand. And so also with our brains, you know, we're screwed up. 
Uh, you can't trust this thing. So we have to grab onto something that is a higher authority, and now we have something that will, will save us. We can be transformed by the renewing of our mind, but only if we give the word more authority than our brain. Okay, this question says, based on your assessment of the nature of ancient prophecy, that it is more about how Jesus filled out an event in the Old Testament rather than predicting the future, how does that affect the way you view modern-day Christian prophets who claim to predict the future? Should those of us who believe we have the gift of prophecy today have our use of the gift changed by the new idea you introduced us to? Hmm. 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 <laughs> Interesting. Well, um, here, 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 so what, what, for those of you who weren't here, what, what I, I just made this point that, that uh, basing your faith in the Bible on fulfilled prophecy is probably not the best strategy uh, because uh, most of the fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, but not all, but most of them aren't, they don't mean that, that someone predicted that this event was going to happen. They just mean that this event fills out the meaning of this previous passage. Um, and so that's where this question's coming from. But I wouldn't say that that's true of all. When, when I went through the Josh McDowell 300 verses after the kid exposed my bad argument, I went through and actually read them. And there were, as I remember, seven that I thought were, were you could argue that they were predictive about Jesus being born in Bethlehem mm -hmm. and things like that. And so, so I'm not, you do find predictions about the future. But it's funky in the Bible because sometimes you have predictions and then they don't come to pass, um, which shows that there's flexibility built into them and things like that. So as to my view of contemporary prophets, um, as I understand the, 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 the gift in the New Testament, if you have a gift of prophecy, it's not primarily about foretelling the future. It's about, about proclaiming the, the word, uh, you know, being, having a gift to proclaim the word in a compelling way that, that elicits certain actions from people. Uh, that's its primary function. If, if a person believes they know something about the future, um, I guess my question would be, uh, well, what, what, what's that for? Because uh, God isn't into little occult tricks, like, look what I can do, you know, like tarot card reading or something like that. There's always a loving function for it. What would be the loving function of, of, of foretelling something that's going to happen, unless it's a warning about maybe what could happen if things don't change? And that's the primary function of, of biblical prophecy. Uh, it, it, God isn't saying, it's not like with the Greeks where you can you know, predict this precise thing 300 years from now or even three days from now, but it's, a, it's about a warning. This is the future, but it's conditional. If you'll change, I'll change. And, and so um, I, I, I think that still can happen today. Uh, though I'll tell you that if anyone tells me about a certain future that's going to happen, I always, I have to know them and, and their character, and I also need some kind of confirmation of it. I wouldn't go sell my retirement account or something because someone told me that the stock market's going to blow up in three days or something. Okay. I think we have time for one more. And I'm just going to read it just the way this person sent it in. So, um, okay, ready? Um, this were, were you doctoring up the other ones? <laughs> I was. <laughs> this one I'm actually going to read what they wrote. <laughs> okay. I sincerely believe in Jesus, but I have a ton of serious issues. I have OCD, pervasive anxiety disorder. I am a recovering drug addict and a sex addict who struggles with this every single day and not always successfully. I've been prayed for a gazillion times, but nothing much seems to change. If God is truly all-powerful, why the hell doesn't he just heal me? 
There, there's a lot of variables that go into uh, the way we are, the way we're born, uh, and into whether a person gets healed or not. It's not just a matter of God you know, making his decision and, and us having faith. And those are the two variables that people always go to. If you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. Or, uh, you know, God, God must not want to heal you. But the scriptures gives a lot of other indications, things that affect what comes to pass. Um, Daniel, in Daniel 10, he prays, and God hears his prayer and dispatches an angel in response. But then the angel gets detained 21 days because the prince of Persia, which is this cosmic entity, inter- interferes, doesn't want Daniel to get that message. And... and uh, and then when the angel finally shows up, he says, I got to be brief because I got to go back and join because now uh, uh, you know, the prince of uh, Persia or, or the prince of Greece has joined in. So there's this warfare going on. But if, if we didn't know about any of that, and we wouldn't if it wasn't in the text, well, we'd have got Daniel praying and there's a 21 delay, 21 day delay before he gets an answer. And some people would say, well, must have been God's will because God's always right on time. God's timing is the right timing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and others would say, well, Daniel, he lacked faith for 21 days. You know, he finally got it and that's why he got the answer. And they'd both be wrong. The world's a whole lot more complex than that. Uh, that, that that's what the whole book of Job is about as I, as I read it. Um, we, we humans know next to nothing about anything. What we do know is God's character. Uh, and the problem of evil, I, I argue, uh, is, is a, a problem. We, we can't understand the randomness of the, why things happen the way they do, not because we don't understand God's character. He's, he, he's, good at re- he's a good communicator. He reveals himself totally in Jesus Christ. That we know. What we don't know is anything else uh, because there's a, a line of, of contingent events that go into explaining anything being in the way it is. Um, if anything had been different in the past, maybe these glasses wouldn't be up right now, or I wouldn't be drinking Powerade, or Paul would be a rabbit. Anything could change. So, so I, I, I don't think that this is just all about God. Uh, it's not. The, the, but the, the, the thing I'd say to you is this. Um, the, most important, the, most, the most, most important thing for you is, in the midst of all the issues you've got, is can you... Spend some time just sitting with Jesus and letting him love you in the midst of all those issues. Uh, love you exactly as you are. Um, and, and just trust that his love is not affected by that. Because it's, it's being loved perfectly as you are that can begin to heal you and change who you are. Uh, everything in the kingdom runs on the fuel of love. Not fear, not threat. It runs on the fuel of love. So I, I would, if you can just get okay with you as you are um, in, in terms of God's love for you and experience that unsurpassable worth with all your issues, that's what will give you fuel to, to begin to change things. And the Holy Spirit is working with you uh, and will use this as a way of, of uh, you know, teaching you to have authority over things in your life. I would also encourage you to be getting, uh, you know, I, I know you've been prayed for for healing, but to have a warfare dimension of this because the enemy can be accentuating some of these things. Some of the stuff is just part of being born in a fallen world and we're all broken in different ways, but some of it can have a demonic component to it. Um, and then, of course, I'm assuming that you're doing all that you can do on a natural level to address these issues with, with medication and counseling and things like that. We and, always, and community. And, and community around you, yes. That, that's... Uh, absolutely important thing in terms of uh, overcoming this stuff. But at the center of everything is, is being loved exactly as you are, warts and all. Amen. That's all Amen. I have to say about that. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Greg and Paul, for being so it wise. Is- and.
We don't do sports. We don't do, you know, most things that, that, that manly men do. But for us, this is, this is our form of fun. So, so we love doing this, this and debating and, and reading books. Uh, okay, would you stand and can I ask the ushers to come, or not the ushers, the, the prayer team to come up here. And uh, if you're here tonight and have any need that could use prayer, uh, come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here tonight and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, I encourage you to think about that. And if you want to find out more about that, come up here and talk to these folks and they'll explain to you what is, uh, what is what and what it means to follow Jesus. So as we leave here, can we once again do it as a people who are committed to worshiping God with our brains? And we do that by thinking about things and thinking authentically and honestly and dealing with others honestly and listening to their points of view honestly because the truth stands up under any kind of scrutiny. If you're in agreement with that, say amen. Go out and love your neighbors. Amen. Let's give a warm welcome to Greg and Paul who are going to be answering our questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So the first question. It's Paul, uh, you know, in this March Madness, big dance. Uh, you have any teams that are still uh, in play in, in your bracket? Uh, how are you doing on that? Answer is he has no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the truth is I don't have a clue what I'm, I'm asking either because none of us get into basketball or football or anything like that. Uh, really, all stuff that real men do, Paul and I don't do. Uh, we just kind of strike out. <laughs> but to us, this is, this is our form of fun. This is, this is, uh, this is what we like this to do. This is, our, this is right our here. sport, yeah. Right here. Wrestling with topics and stuff, so... Yeah. So are you guys like the top two? This is the championship? Is yeah, right here. Okay. We're getting on the final four. <laughs> Battle it out? All right, let's see who wins. Okay, we're going to get started. Our first question is, when I listen to the sermons from the last few weeks, I feel like how could any sound person actually be an atheist or not believe Jesus is Lord? But clearly, many people are atheists, and they weren't able to be on stage with you to give their response to your sermons. What are some of the most convincing arguments you have heard from atheists or non-Christians about why they do not believe in God or Jesus? Have you ever been stumped in a debate with someone like this? <laughs> You've had, and you have had a few debates with uh, folks few, like this. A few debates. Okay, I'd say the, the uh, number one reason why people give for not believing in God uh, is the problem of evil. Uh, they just say, if there's an all-good, all-powerful God, why is this world so screwed up? Um, as for why not believing in Jesus, it's been my experience that the main thing that drives disbelief is uh, just the supernatural claims, mm -hmm. uh, the report of miracles, the resurrection, and things like that. Uh, folks just think that that's impossible to believe. And so they, those are the two main ones. Uh, I don't think I've ever been stumped on any of that. You've been to a lot of my debates. But I, I don't think I've... I've I, I, I did get my butt kicked one time in a debate. I have to admit this. I was debating this, this uh, atheist. He's a neuroscientist. And uh, I had assumed Never that, assumed. I know, I know, that, that, that it, 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 if you're an atheist, that uh, your, your view of morality will be that morality is simply a, cult, a cultural f phenomenon, uh, and there's no absolute good, no absolute you know, uh, morality that, to measure things by. And, and I went into this debate assuming that, so I have some really good arguments against that. But this guy all of a sudden argues that morality is, is absolute. There are absolute transcultural uh, moral principles. And, and he argued that on a naturalistic basis, and I'd never heard that argument before. So the entire debate, I was on my heels. Like, what is this guy talking about, you know? <laughs> and so I, I didn't do very well in that one. Although, afterwards, uh, I had the, the atheist group that had invited me there 
uh, two of them came and wanted to ask more about Jesus. Uh, and, and it was just because I, I was honest in, in saying I don't have an answer to that, and I treated him with respect, and, and he th- they thought that. So you can lose the debate and still win, so there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's at work. If I remember right, I did encourage you to read his book before the debate. Did you really? Yeah. I honestly yeah. I, I, I recall Always that. an idea. It's you know. it, it is good to know something about your opponent when you go into a debate. <laughs> I learned that lesson. Listen. You just yeah. didn't listen. Okay. <laughs> Often throughout this series, the references to support truth were from the Bible. If you're conveying your beliefs to someone, they are not going to believe the Bible as a reputable source. So how do you support the truth of the Bible without the Bible? Isn't it the same as using an autobiography of Greg Boyd as a reputable source for a term paper about Greg Boyd? <laughs> Well, if Greg Boyd wrote the, the autobiography, that would be a <laughs> You answer that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think this question gets down to the issue of assumptions, uh, c- common ground in any conversation. So if I'm talking with a Christian about a topic, as I do at, say, at Bethel with my students, I can frequently just assume, since they're at Bethel and since they're in my theology class, that we, we can grant the Bible is the word of God. I don't have to argue for that. And then I can, like, draw things from the Bible for a point I'm making. But yeah, if I'm talking to someone who's, say, an atheist or just n- not bought into the Christian faith, you, you can't make that assumption. And if you do, it's going to be a, a classic argument of, of circularity. And so um, I had a mentor once who gave me a really helpful uh, kind of image to, to imagine this. He, he called it the river of truth. And he had kind of, he do a, this thing on the board of river that's kind of moving downstream. And he had four points on the river, four bends in the river. It started with the, the first, the beginning uh, of the river was, is there truth? So kind of the truth question. Do you believe in truth? Second was, do you believe in God? Thirdly, do you believe in Jesus? And the fourth question was, would you want to make Jesus Lord of your life? And his point was, it's going to be hard for someone to make Jesus the Lord of their life if they've got problems upriver. Uh, if they don't believe in truth, they're going to have a hard time believing that, that's, that it's true, there's a God, etc. And his, his encouragement was, always go back up the river as far as you have to go in order to get people to be able to move down the river logically to the point where they can embrace Jesus as Lord. Uh, but never go farther than you have to go. If someone's only having trouble with Jesus, don't go, well, you know, maybe there's no God. Let, let's, let's, let's try to prove that first. Great evangelism tool. So go up the river as you serve that person with their intellectual journey. And I've, I have found that very helpful. Um, so if I'm with an atheist, I know at least they're stuck up on the God part, maybe even on the truth part, depending if they're coming from a postmodern atheistic worldview. And once, wherever you're at in the river, you have different criteria now, right? A few sermons ago, Greg talked about the kind of things you'd want to talk about if where they're stuck on the river is the God question. I think uh, ex- totally what you want to talk about is things like um, you know, cosmology and, and astrophysics and some of the, the fine design of the universe and those sorts of things. Um, and if it's Jesus, well, then you can go to the Bible, but the question at that point is, is the Bible reliable, namely the four Gospels? And Greg and I spent four years on a book, The Jesus Legend. I think it was more like six. It was a long time. Yeah. Uh, and on our, we, we say right up front in the first chapter, we're Christians and we believe the Bible's God's word. But for the purpose of this book, we're going to put that, that belief on the shelf and simply investigate this text as if we were historians who had no particular Christian beliefs. Because we wanted to be able to offer that book to someone who was in that position. And so it's always about fi- it's finding common ground. Yeah, Jesus legend. 
As I said uh, a couple weeks ago, or last week, or I don't know, I said at some point, it was a year ago. But uh, um, most Christians, uh, you know, if you talk about that river, they, they, put the, the, they, they put the Bible, you know, like at the, the, the third curve, and then Jesus uh, after yeah. that, because if they're asked, why do you believe in Jesus, they'll quote the Bible. The trouble is, that doesn't work if the person doesn't already believe in the Bible. So what I recommended was putting the Bible after Jesus. Don't believe in Jesus because you believe in the Bible. Believe in the Bible because you believe in Jesus. And the reason you believe in Jesus has to do with the historical considerations and things like that. So this next couple of questions, we got in quite a bit, so we're going to pack them together. So you have to listen. Pack them together. together. So I have to listen. So you have to listen. I got to listen before? (laughs) God. Just saying. (laughs) These two questions relate to Greg's sermon on the inspiration of the Bible. If you grant that there are mistakes in the Bible, how do you know there aren't errors you haven't picked up on? What if some of them are critical to the essence of faith? And if we look at scripture as a flawed text written by flawed people, we must pick and choose what to believe and what to disregard as error. If we cherry pick scripture, what separates us from Christians Mm. who enact confirmation bias and use passages to further their own moral agenda? Yeah, Greg. All right, yeah, Greg. (laughs) Okay. I, w- I am not at all advocating, uh, in fact, I'd be really against the concept of cherry-picking scriptures, like I like this one, this one, this one, uh, where it's just left up to your own subjective preferences or things like that. Um, I, I think that you know, there's, there's objective criteria that we use to assess the Bible, uh, the most important one being um, you know, the, the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, whose whole ministry and teaching was, was oriented towards the cross. So the crucified Christ is that objective criteria, and that at least is how we assess the portraits of God in the Bible, the degree to which uh, the, the Spirit of God broke through and was able to reveal the, the, the true God, and we know that because it's consistent with what we find in Christ, and the degree to which God had to bear the sin of his people and thereby take on an appearance in the, the narrative that reflects that sin, that sinful conception of God. And other things, uh, you, you discern something is, is off because, you, you, well, we just know that it's off. Like, for example, um, I, we're, I, I'm pretty sure most people believe that the, the earth isn't held up by pillars and the sky isn't hard as a molten mirror holding up water with wind and has windows in it to be opened up to let it rain. Uh, you know, from science, that's just not, that's not accurate. And so there you have to say that's just their culture. Well, that's their, God has to stoop to speak their language and work in their categories. And, and so you assess it like that. Uh, but if, and there, there may be things in the text that, that are uh, erroneous that, that, that we haven't recognized yet. But well, because science may de- define something else out that, that uh, uh, shows that in, in, in the biblical text. Uh, but there again, there'll be evidence for it. So it's, it's not a subjective thing. There's objective criteria for this. Uh, as for the, the whole thing about the essence of faith, on the authority of Jesus, I take this whole book to be God-breathed. And as I argued last week, um, the, the errors in it are, are no more problematic to the, its inspiration than, our, than the, the, the sin that, and the imperfections that Jesus bore on the cross are, are an obstacle to that being the full revelation of God. The, the cross is the full revelation of God precisely because God is bearing the sin and imperfection of the world there. And so God clearly has no problem breathing through uh, fallible people and through sin and, and things like that. That's what he does on the cross. And the cross should be our paradigm for all of this. 
And, and uh, since I have good reason to think that the Gospels are generally reliable, give us a reliable picture of who Jesus is, and since Jesus endorses all of this, I'm going to endorse all of this. It's all revelation, not cherry-pick or anything. It's all revelation. Um, and, and, but w- w- what is it revelation for? And here's where I, Jesus teaches us that this, this narrative is infallibly inspired for the purpose of bringing people into a relationship with the, the living God through Jesus Christ. And, and so we can trust it for that purpose. Um, if, if you read the Bible with that agenda, it will never let you down. Now, if you read it with a different agenda, to find out scientific information or whatever, it's going to disappoint you. But read it for the purpose for which it's written, and I think it's infallible. Paul's good with it. You know I gave a good answer if Paul isn't going to come in and supplement it. Yes, but if and maybe footnote. Okay, so how do we know which books of the Bible to take as history, allegory, poetry, legend, etc.? Ah, good question. Yeah, I think that, that, that's a, to ask that question is the beginning of, important, uh, of solid Bible reading. Uh, I, my grandmother, who's passed away and who I dearly loved, and was an amazing woman of God, um, I don't think she ever asked this question. Uh, her method of, of discerning what God would like her to know today was to open her Bible and go like this. And, and whatever it, she pointed to, that was God's, which God bless her, it, it worked. But... But I don't think Grandma thought much Very about dangerous. when on Thursday she opened up to, say, Genesis 2, a creation text, and Wednesday she opened up to a psalm, and Thursday she opened up to a gospel, and Friday it was the book of Revelation. I, I think Grandma just took it all as the Bible, which it is. But uh, it would run, it, it's really helpful when we realize that each book of the Bible, and sometimes even certain parts of certain books of the Bibles, are different kinds of literature are different genres, uh, because every type of genre has particular, what you might call, rules of interpretation. You know, every, every type of literature is sort of like a semantic contract that people agree to in a culture, right? So if I, for example, um, said uh, uh, political cartoon, uh, science fiction, and newspaper article, and then handed you those three things, Probably because you live in this culture and could identify those, you would know what each was and how to read them. And you probably wouldn't read a political cartoon the way you would a uh, a science fiction novel. You know the rules of interpretation. The problem is we don't easily know the rules of interpretation of ancient genres, like apocalyptic, Book of Revelation, for example, or how does Hebrew poetry work, things like this. And so part of our responsibility, I think, as as responsible Bible readers is to do a little bit of, of background study to know how to identify these kind of genre and, and how they work. Uh, here's a suggestion. Now, you may have heard uh, a, an icebreaker sometime. If you're ever on a deserted island, you can only bring one thing. What do you bring? And as Christians, we, we all know the answer. It's, of course, the Bible. But if you ever get, what's the second thing you should bring? Here's the answer. Fee and Stewart's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. <laughs> Write that down, all right? It's this great little book, and uh, the opening two chapters kind of tell you some background of the Bible, but all the rest of the chapters are just taking each type of literature you find in the Bible um, and, and encouraging you to keep this in mind as you read that type of literature. Really a, a helpful source for uh, helping us know what ancient genres are and how they work. Awesome. 
Good question. If I was going to be stranded on a desert island, the first thing I'd bring is a whole lot of food. The second thing would be the Bible. So. I'm with Jesus. He said man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So. It's kind of hard to interpret the Bible when you're starving to death. I am saying. Oh, this is good. All right. Some of the faith-focused sermons over the last few weeks were troubling to me. I agree that we should not be judging others. However, what about all of the Bible passages in the New Testament that call us to judge fellow believers who are walking in sin in order to bring them back to a relationship with the Lord? For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it isn't our responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly mm. is our responsibility to responsibility yeah. to judge those inside the church who are sinning. How is Woodland Hills Church fulfilling this scripture? I judge you. <laughs> well, let me take that. I get that question a lot. Um, it's important to understand the context uh, in which the New Testament is written and what, what the model of church is. Um, you know, for the first three centuries, the church uh, met in houses, uh, people's houses. They didn't have separate buildings for this. And uh, so the average congregation would be 10, 20, 30 people. And um, uh, they'd meet frequently. Uh, we know from one historical source that in some locations they met every morning before people had to go to work. And they pray and stuff. So th these are, this is an intimate community. And, and it's, it's a covenantal community. They're committed to one another. They know one another. And see, in a context like that, um, they're, they're not judging each other, but they are discerning for each other. And this is an important distinction. It, it doesn't help. The same Greek word is used for both judgment and discernment. And you have to, the context is what determines uh, which is which. Judgment is when you separate yourself from somebody and, and posture yourself over them. And, and you're, you know, pointing out some flaw in them. And it, that, Jesus says, we're never to do. Uh, whatever flaw, imperfection, sin you think you see in somebody else's life, you to consider that a mere dust particle compared to the tree trunk that's coming out of your eyes, uh, Matthew 7, 1 through 3. And so it, rather than looking down on others, we should be looking up to others and consider our, our, our stuff to be, to, to be worse than others. But uh, discernment is when you separate things. Uh, you're not judging, you're not, getting, you're not feeding your, your ego by contrasting yourself with others, but you're out of love helping somebody say this is healthy and this isn't healthy. Uh, this is consistent with the kingdom and this isn't consistent with, with the kingdom. And we all need that. People in our life who can have eyes for us because all, we all have blind spots. And, but that, that, that presupposes that I've invited a person in and, and, uh, and they've invited me in and we've agreed to help each other live out this life. And when someone who knows me and is, you know, has an inside uh, feel for what's going on in my life, when they say, Greg, I'm concerned about this, that means something to me. And I know they're not judging me. They, they are just trying to help me. Uh, but if a stranger on the street, I don't care if they're a Christian or not, they come up and they point out something. It's like, well, you know, who made you Lord of my life? <laughs> you know, I, 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 thanks a lot, but you don't know a thing about me. And so, yes, we need discernment, but, but uh, judgment's always forbidden. And, made reference to, to Matthew 7 there, and I think that, that, that Matthew 7, 1 to 5 actually nicely answers this, right? Because you mentioned the first part, which is, hey, judge not lest you'd be judged, because by the standard you judge others, so you will be judged. I think that, that's a really helpful thing for us to remember, is that every time I go to make some critical assessment of someone, I'm telling God the level at which I want him to critically assess my life, which means if I want to receive mercy, I'm to give mercy, and I am to not judge others. But 
that the idea that if, if I walk around life thinking of my own stuff, my own stuff in my life as a tree trunk hanging out of my eye, and others as simply a dust particle that will always keep me from, from doing the self-righteous judgment thing. I'll be in a, in a humble stance. But then Jesus ends by saying, so therefore, uh, work on removing that log from your own eye so that you can see carefully to help your brother or sister take the speck out of their eye. If, if you have a speck in your eye, a sliver, it's not loving for me to, to, to just go, well, whatever, that's your business. But I'd have to remember the log in my own eye. That would keep me humble. That would help me come to you already as a sinner, far worse than you, and not judging you, but loving you. And that, I think, is the context Greg's talking about. So Jesus gives us a really nice answer in that mm-hmm. one simple passage. This and I, I think an important aspect of uh, that question um, is that, that uh, for the church right now especially, is that Paul says, what business do we have judging those outside the church? And Peter says that judgment begins at the house of God. Uh, and so we have no business trying to impose you know, our ideas or opinions or ethics on other people uh, who, who aren't, aren't following Christ. Our, our job is just to manifest the love of God towards them. And at a time when the church tends to be, you know, this isn't altogether new, but right now it's kind of hyperdrive where uh, the church wants to be the moral police of the broader society and point out other people's sin and try to pass laws against their sin, but not against ours. Uh, it just kills our PR department and it violates scripture. Please never do that. No. All right. Thank you guys for these questions. They're really good. Um, so this texture wrote in, I have been taught my entire life that premarital sex is wrong, but I do not see this commandment ever explicitly stated in scripture. Almost every passage that discusses sex deals with it in the context of marriage. Also, many Bible scholars argue that pornea does not refer to premarital sex. Is premarital marital sex wrong in your view? If so, why, biblically speaking? Well, Dr. Ruth, you're the expert on sex. Sex, sex, sex. <laughs> Hello, you're on the app. <laughs> Is she still alive? Is she still doing that? It seems to be hilarious, this old lady talking about sex. And, oh, never, never mind. I'll, I'll trust you on that, Greg. <laughs> Too much information. Paul, <laughs> well, yeah. Please. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I think it's important. We'll start here with this. I think it's important to realize God never... I don't believe, uh, comes up with arbitrary do's and don'ts. Um, I love how Jesus put it when he was asked the greatest commandment. And he couldn't answer with one. He had to answer with two because it's actually a two-part deal. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. So right there, Jesus really was, was talking about three directions of love. Loving God, loving others, and loving oneself. And as we do that... Then Jesus went on to say, by the way, all the other commandments, which rabbis counted at 613 in the Old Testament, all those others are wrapped up, are fulfilled in loving God and your neighbor as yourself. And so when it comes to sex or anything, I think we should expect to find, whatever we find in Scripture, we should find principles that are wrapped around the idea of agape love for God, for others, and for ourselves. And of course, when it comes to sex, it's going to be around things like relationships, like our bodies. And I I like the fact that the question observed that when it does find sexual teaching, it's usually around marriage. And I think that's absolutely right. The question is why? If God doesn't do this arbitrary, don't do that, do this, if he's got reasons for it, and it's always about love and relationship, why does he always talk around sex in context of marriage? 
I would argue the reason he does that, and I think we can find this from Genesis chapter 2, the first mention of the first marriage covenant, all the way through, I would argue, to the book of Revelation, where Jesus at the end turns up as the groom, uh, the, the cosmic groom, and we are the bride of Christ. That what sex functions as through the entire scripture is the visible sign of the marriage covenant. Um, and, and here's where we need a little background on covenant relationship because God works in covenants all through Scripture, right? The creational covenant with Adam and Eve, uh, Noah's covenant, Abraham's covenant, the Sinai covenant with Israel, um, Davidic covenant with David, and finally the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Every time God creates a covenant relationship with people, he gets to choose a particular sign. And what a sign is, is something you, that's visible or you can experience it with your five senses. And it reminds you of the reality of the covenant, but the covenant is just a spiritual reality you can't see with your eyes. So the sign helps you remember and uh, renew the actual spiritual covenant that's just a spiritual relational sort of thing. So, for example, with the Noah's covenant, it's the rainbow. We, we see the rainbow, we experience it, remember God's promise and what the covenant is. Or with the Sinai covenant with Moses and Israel, it was the Sabbath day's rest. Every time you, you have a Sabbath, you rest to remember the covenant that God made with Israel. What seems pretty clear as you read the, the sexual text through Scripture is that God decided that for human beings, not any other species, but human beings, sexual intimacy will be the sign, the visible, experienceable uh, reminder of the covenant of marriage. And I think once you connect those two things, all of the sexual texts all of a sudden kind of, the, the coin drops in the sot and they all make sense. Um, sort of premarital sex. What would be the problem in God's mind of sex prior to marriage? I think it would be this. You'd be signing a covenant that you're not in. And that's just illogical, right? It'd be sort of like me saying, uh, what's wrong with signing a check? Because remember, when you sign a check, that comes from covenantal contractual language. My sign is my signature, and that's telling someone when I hand it to them, I'm promising you that one, this is my bank account, not someone else's, and two, there are enough funds in this check, I'm not ripping you off. They can trust my sign, my signature. Well, we're supposed to be able to trust each other when we sign each other's sexually with our bodies. It's a, it's a physical act that's saying, I'm promising you there's a covenant to back this up. So the same thing's problematic with premarital sex as premarital, well, pre-banking check writing. <laughs> Work with me on this. <laughs> pre-banking. <laughs> I'm you trying to find a, a, a modern day analogy here. <laughs> Forging checks. <laughs> is it fun to write checks? Of course, you get to buy stuff. But I shouldn't write a check that I stole from my neighbor's house yesterday. Or I shouldn't write a check that has my name on it when I know fully well I haven't put any funds in that account. It's called fraud. You go to jail for that sort of stuff. It's called lying. If we realize signing with our body in a, in a, uh, uh, with a person is no different than signing a check, we just have to ask the question, is there a covenant that I'm signing? Because if not, I'm lying with my body, telling lies with my body. Hmm. And that's why I think God always connects sex with covenant. Interestingly, Paul picks this up, and all this goes back to Genesis 2. And Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 6, to, and he, he's, he's trying to get this point across to us, I think. So he makes the most outlandish 
uh, example of sex where there would never be a covenant involved. And he picks prostitution, right? In prostitution, everyone knows there's no covenant here. Money's being exchanged for the pleasure of pur- purpose of pleasure, not covenant. But Paul says, know this. When you have sex with a prostitute, you just became one with her. And he uses the marital oneness language one of Genesis 2, one flesh. So Paul's saying, for some reason, sex just does this to people. It's the way God wired us. And uh, I think it's fascinating that increasing, particularly in the last 15 years, um, uh, as we've got uh, MRI studies and, and, and that we're making new breakthroughs scientifically with regard to hormones and things, we now know that the hormones of particularly vasopressin for males and oxytocin for females, that in the sex act, as these chemicals are, inter- are happening, and they do happen in that moment in our brains with this activity, that vasopressin, they actually call it the, 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 the monogamy molecule for males, that it does something to them to bond them to that partner. And reciprocally for females, oxytocin does that. They've shown that women with just... Uh, uh, given a dose of oxytocin, an artificial dose of oxytocin, and then kissing a man within 20 seconds of the kiss are moved to trust that man regardless of his character or anything else. It's the hormonal real- reaction to that. I would suggest we're finding that we are wired for sexual intimacy being able to have us feel the experience of trust and bonding, which would make perfect sense if what it's for is to sign a covenant. They also found that if that is done with different partners, yeah. uh, that it, it, it starts to decrease it. It's like, like using tape over and over again. Yep. It loses its stickiness, and you become, it damages your capacity to, to, be, able to, to be trustworthy and That's and particularly for males with a vasopressin molecule. The, the, the receptors start to not work if there's too many partners. And I would say there, look, I think when every time you mention sex, we also all have to say together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us, to some degree or another, are broken in this area. There's no uh, sexually perfect human being. We live in a fallen world, and this is one of the big areas. So back to the point. There's no place to judge anyone on this, but what we can do together is to say, as as, as mutually broken people in this world, with different ways of being broken in this area, we can all look to Jesus as our groom. Uh, This is also helpful to remember that every sex act, every marriage is simply a temporary dress rehearsal for us to get ready for our groom who's going to be our spouse forever. We are the bride and Jesus is the groom and we're trying to make our pathetic, broken sexual lives line up with his covenants so that we can be covenant keepers with Jesus for eternity. And that's, that's the true marriage. That's, that's where something far greater than sex will bond us to Jesus for eternity. So you're saying if I want to be biblical, I should uh, say to my wife, hey, can we sign the covenant tonight? <laughs> yeah, Greg, that's the takeaway. That's the takeaway. That's, that's what you okay, want to Okay, no, no, I, I can tell Paul's writing a book on this because that was an eight-minute answer, but, uh, but it was a good one. It's a 400-page book, so you got the condensed version. <laughs> but, but there's a part of the question that hasn't been answered yet, and that is, what about the word porneia? Oh, porneia. Uh, you know, what is sex? You know, is yeah. It, 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 you, yeah, they mentioned, read the porneia thing, I, uh, also, many Bible scholars argue that porneia does not refer to premarital sex. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't por- only refer to it. Doesn't, porneia is an interesting word. It, it's one that's often used in the New Testament around sexual matters. What we know about it is this. In the Greek context of that day, porneia simply meant prostitute. That's super clear from, from the Greco-Roman literature. But the Jews use it 
in a far more expansive sense. And then Jesus and Paul, I argue, and I'm not alone here, people like Kyle Harper and, and William Loder have done a lot of great work on this, that what Jesus and Paul use this word for is a very broad category of, of any sexual activity outside of a covenantal context. And so when you see porneia, it, it often gets translated into our, our Bibles as sexual immorality or something kind of broad like that. And I think that, that is appropriate. It would certainly cover premarital sex, but it would cover any sexuality that isn't being part of a covenantal signing process. I think that's why, again, it's always back and tied to marriage. And it, it, Paul says that at one point, uh, flee from porneia, flee mm-hmm. from it. So for the believer, uh, it shouldn't be a question of how close to the edge can we get before it's technically porneia. Uh, that, that's, that, that's adopting kind of a legal mindset. You know, where, where are the loopholes? Yeah. Uh, you want to err on the side of staying free from it. Especially because Paul, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he likens having this porneia with other people uh, outside of the marriage covenant as cheating on your relationship with Christ. Yeah. And so you don't want to be cheating on Jesus. Amen. I wouldn't if I were you. <laughs> well, let's move on. What is your opinion on the doctrine of election? Some passages in the Bible seem to be saying that God chooses only some people for salvation. But to me, this seems opposed to other passages like John 3.16, where it sounds like God loves all sinners so deeply that he gave his son for all of us. And yet, that none of us are coerced into choosing him. Can you help reconcile these two types of Bible passages for me? I'll take that one, and I'll be a lot more succinct than Paul was. <laughs> so here's the thing. I mean, not only does it, the idea that God picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who's not, not only does that conflict with a bunch of other passages, but it, it's, it's fundamentally in conflict with what God reveals about himself in Jesus Christ, and especially on the cross. Uh, and, and so you know that if your theology lands you in a place where you have a different portrait of God than what's revealed in Christ. You know something was wrong along the lines. Um, You find that God sometimes elects individuals for certain roles, but the primary concept of election uh, throughout Scripture is is a corporate model of election. God elects a people group. and, and, and uh, you, are, you, you freely choose whether you're going to belong to that people group or not. So if you belong to that group, then you're one of the elect. Uh, and if you choose, opt out, then you're not. But God didn't elect you individually to be in or out. So when Paul says that it's been predestined uh, that we who are in Christ would uh, be holy and blameless before him in love, Ephesians 1, um, he's not saying God picked individuals to be holy and blameless. He's saying we who believe... Have been, it's been predestined that we who believe are going to be holy and blameless before him in love. And now that you decided to join us, well, then it's true of you. Uh, but it's a corporate concept. Uh, God would never, what, what parent would ever pick and choose what, which of the kids they're going to love or which of the kids are going to have a terrible fate, whatever. And if a parent wouldn't do that, um, well, God loves his children a trillion, trillion times more than any parent could. So uh, God would never do that. And I would say, too, that some people hearing that, what we're, what we're talking about here really is the, the ages-long Calvinist-Arminian debate. It's been going on for centuries. And someone, I think, could hear Greg's answer and go, well, you're just an Arminian. A Calvinist would say something else. But I think the question, uh, the, the really important observation is to ask, what would a Jew in Jesus and Paul's time have thought about this? Exactly. And when you ask the question in the first century, who's chosen? Who's elect? Every Jew knew the answer. And the answer was Israel. It wasn't particular Israelites. 
It was Israel as a people group. Because if you're an Israelite, you could actually get outside of the group by being cut off from among your people for certain sins. And as a Gentile, you could come into Israel by taking the sign of circumcision. So the, the, the permeable boundaries of the community could be crossed by people, but it was the, it was the, the group that was elect. And that goes back to the point that it's a corporate notion, not an individual notion. Mm-hmm. I have a student who is Muslim. She believes Jesus was just a prophet. She believes what her family believes, that men should have four wives and has to live with one of them who is not her mother. How can I share Christ with her? Hmm. I taught world religions for a number of years at Bethel and always had a... I don't know where I met. I met a, met a young woman. She was a law student, uh, from Pakistan and was a Muslim and would come and be a guest speaker in the class each year and, and got to know her over the years and was, was in a similar situation. And uh, I, I, think I, I think I learned something in relating to her and I've had this sort of intuition um, impressed upon me from missionaries that I've talked to who actually work in, in Muslim contexts. I think a lot of times we as Christians think that if we want someone to come to Jesus and they're in another religion, the first step is to sort of get them to see that their religion's wrong. And once we kind of you know, deconstruct their religion, then maybe they'll find Jesus and Christianity attractive. But um, what a number of missionaries are finding, particularly in Islam, uh, is that don't go, don't go after the religion. Go for Jesus. Because, see, the nice thing about Islam is that in the Quran, there's a ton of passages about Jesus. There's, 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 actually, there's more passages about the mother of Mary Jesus' mother in the Quran and there is in Scripture, I think, in our Bible. Um, Jesus is a revered prophet. In fact, many Muslims interpret a passage in the Quran as saying that Jesus is going to come back at the end of time, not Muhammad. So Jesus has a significant place in Islamic theology. And for us to be able to recognize that and appeal to someone to uh, begin to turn to and experience Jesus, what I, I suspect is... When, you, when someone meets Jesus, actually meets Jesus relationally and experientially, the big problem they're going to have with Jesus is, but is he God? And they're taught that, no, that's blasphemy. Um, but I wonder, because I've heard missionaries who said, when people meet Jesus in Islam and actually experience him, his presence, his power, his love, it's, they're in a far easier position then to be able to connect him to God and not just a good prophet than when we come in just giving theological arguments. So I just think it's a, this is a great instance where, where theology is helpful and knowing some background, but also just inviting someone to, to take a step with Jesus and experience the reality of his power and his love. It's a little bit like Paul on, on Mars Hill, where, yeah, exactly. where he's, he sees all these idols there, and as a Jew, he would have been very defend, offended by these. Uh, but uh, he, he doesn't go after the false idols. He finds that there's one idol that, that is to the unknown God, and, and he builds on that. He said, it's, he's, he's really saying, so you grant that there's possibly something you don't know. Well, let me tell you about this one. And so he doesn't go after the negative. Yep. He builds on whatever positive he can find. Yep. All right. I think this will be our last question. So you guys just dive into oh, it really on. We've got, good. We've got okay. another. We, no, we've got you seven minutes. we got time for two more. Come on. So belligerent. Can a fallen human know absolute truth? Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, following human, no absolute truth, absolutely. Uh, well, there's a, you can know absolute truth, but I don't know if you can know it absolutely. If you mean by that, you couldn't possibly be wrong. Um, if you get to the point where, it's just, it's arrogant for human beings 
to claim that you have absolute knowledge of absolute truth. Um, yeah, I, I think you have to at least admit the, the logical possibility that you could be wrong. And that, that's, why, that's why it's called faith. You know, uh, it, it's, so I can have faith in absolute truth. And I may even feel psychologically certain of it. But uh, if I'm dialoguing with somebody, I would never say that, uh, that I couldn't possibly be wrong. In fact, if you want to shut down a, a discussion very quickly, tell the person, I couldn't possibly be wrong. Uh, then there's nothing to talk about. As a human being, admit that, that you could be wrong, and you're open to hearing other perspectives. You believe this, and you've got reasons for believing this, but uh, leave room for, to, to listen to other perspectives. Good word. Now we can go to the last question. Now can we? <laughs> we still got six minutes. We can. Now for the last question. <laughs> If the kingdom of God was fully manifest on earth, what do you believe the world would look like? Oh, wouldn't look like this one, that's for sure. It's, uh, well, you know, the, the Bible just tells us it's, it's beyond anything we can imagine. Uh, so I, I just imagine something as beautiful as could possibly be and, and, and uh, realize that that's just pointing me in the right direction. However beautiful you're conceiving. In fact, I encourage folks to do this as a spiritual exercise, really. It, it's uh, put on some nice music, turn off the lights, and just imagine heaven. Uh, and, and know that, that however beautiful you're conceiving of it, uh, it it's, it's far beyond that. I, I find that that is one of the things, that, that, that's what keeps me an optimist in, in life. Uh, if, if I look at America right now, uh, in the world right now, you can get cynical really, really quick. Uh, but, but what gives me hope is, is you know, knowing that what God has in store for us. And, um, uh, yeah, he'll wipe away every tear from our eye. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more hardship. There'll be no more suffering. No more school shootings. Hallelujah. Uh, actually, God's love will then define every square inch of the cosmos. Uh, his, his love will be, you know, Paul says that everything will be summed up together in Christ under one head. And, and, and so his love is going to permeate everything. Uh, and, and man, at a time like this right now, in fact, I'll be talking about this on Easter, so I can cut this one short. But, but at, a time right, at a time like this, where Paul and I were just talking about, so, there's so much gloom and doom and negative and nastiness and pain in this world that, that it, it just, let all that pain make you hungrier for this. That's why in the early church, you know, they, 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 they prayed, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, I, I, that's a good attitude to have, to be longing for that, because it's going to contrast with what is right now in this fallen state. Uh, it's going to contrast in every conceivable way. It's beautiful. Spend time imagining it. Love that. Mm. Paul, Amen. what would you say? Amen. <laughs> what he said. <laughs> Hallelujah. You guys. Right, we got time for one more. <laughs> so now the Look at this. We're so succinct. Dear Lord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. If God is an eternal being and the universe is billions of years old, why did it take him so long to create humanity? What was he or she doing before creating everything? Hmm? <laughs> Playing bingo. <laughs> <laughs> God in time question. Uh-oh. That's always fun. Uh, you know, I might disagree on this one. So we, a little bit. Stab at it. We got three minutes. You know, um, there's two passages, one in the Old Testament, I think Psalm 90, one in Second Peter, that say that uh, with God a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years, right? And when you're eternal, when you've been forever, 
then any finite amount of time, even if that amount of time is billions and trillions of years, must seem like an eye blink when you've been forever. And uh, so to ask why God waited so long is always an interesting question. Plus, it's, it's an even more interesting question when you realize that, at least since Einstein, we've known that our time, whatever that is, didn't exist some billion number of years ago, that time and space are tied together, and they actually popped into existence. So to even be able to say, what was God doing before, um, before what? Before when there was no time? It's, 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 a, it's a very complicated question. I have no idea what, what God was doing. It's just, it, there was no clock prior to the world, so there was... It, Time is our, our way of measuring change, and, and so I, I think there's always interactions of uh, the three persons, uh, three divine persons in the Trinity. There's always, you know, I think they're relating, um, but, but they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not wearing watches. Uh, <laughs> and that only began with the creation of the world. But the bottom line is you, you, we can't conceive of that, uh, which, you know, th- th- this brings me to a question that was asked me last week, and at, someone was saying, like, well, if you say that God never began, then why not just say that, uh, that, that the universe never began? Uh, I was referring to that dime-sized ball of super-condensed pre-matter and that suddenly exploded and brought all this into being. Um, and the person says, well, why, maybe that was just you know, forever existing. It just did. Well, the thing is, everything, everything we know about matter um, is, is that it's not eternal. It's a bad candidate for an eternal something. And if, there's, if you can't get something from nothing, there must have always been a something. So you have to say something was eternal. And matter is just a poor candidate for that because we know it runs out. It's finite. Um, and so whatever is eternal, it's, 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 it's not material. It's something spiritual. And, uh, and that, I think, is the foundation for believing in God. He always has been. He always will be. And the good news we could end on is that we get to be part of that forever, forever, forever. Because when the kingdom finally comes, I, we're, we're given that eternal life, God's own life. Unlike him, we had a beginning, but we'll never have an end. And this will go on forever and ever in the dance of the triune God. And then we'll find out what God was doing prior to creation. Uh-huh. And we'll be part of it. And it's going to be beautiful. And it's going to be glorious. Amen? Amen. Okay, All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks, you guys. Great questions. I am, so, I am just so happy to be in a place where we, we, we get to be out loud with this kind of stuff and ask questions and wrestle with stuff and, uh, and think. Worship God by thinking. I just appreciate uh, this environment, this culture, and uh, uh, Woodland Hills Church as a whole. Okay, uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up, and if you're here this morning and have any need, uh, whether it's a relational thing, a financial thing, a psychological thing, body thing, whatever, uh, I encourage you to come up and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, a committed follower of Jesus, I encourage you to consider becoming one and just come up here and talk to these folks, and they'll explain to you what it is to get started uh, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we leave this place, can we do this as a people who are committed to worshiping God with our minds, uh, being honest with, uh, with, with, uh, with uh, questions that, that arise? and uh, serving him in every possible way that we can. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. So we've got a couple of experts that are going to answer your questions. We've got Greg coming up, and we've also got Paul Eddy coming up, and Paul will help to keep Greg in line. So let's let's get him up here and welcome them. Good luck with that one. Good luck with that one. Come on down, Paul. You scared him. You made him not want to come back. Did I scale him? You might have. Oh, here he is. Let's Paul scale. Oh, You're a scary you. guy. Uh, I'm not, not scary about me. Oh. How y'all doing today? Uh, you know, I think Paul would agree with this. Uh, uh, this is our, our version of, of fun. 
Uh, we don't do any of the things that manly men do, like get into sports and all that kind of stuff, but we just like to geek out and answer questions and wrestle with things and disagree, and, and I always win. So, uh, <laughs> no, and I just, I just so appreciate this context. I've had several people respond in between services about just how refreshing it is to be able to ask any question. And, and to, you know, that's, that's not only allowed, but, but we encourage it. And to, to worship God with our minds by thinking about things. And a context where we don't always have to see eye to eye and everything and agree on everything. Where there's, like, you know, we, we rally around Jesus and our love with Jesus, uh, but we don't major in the minors. And uh, we respect each other's uh, different opinions and, and things like that. So I, it's just, I, I feel so blessed to be part of this community. And I want to thank you guys for Amen. helping create Woo! this kind Amen. of community that we have here. It's great. <clears throat> Are you guys going to play nice? We'll, we'll try. We'll see. Okay. Here we go. My understanding is that the Council of Nice Nicaea controlled Nicaea. a lot of what went into the Bible and its translation. Doesn't this question the validity of the Bible? Council of mm-hmm. Nicaea. Council of Nicaea. You're a Dan Brown. Why don't you take that? I one? have read Dan Brown. Da Vinci Code. So th- this is a good question because um, it's raising the question. You know, it's one, Greg had a sermon last week about the entire Bible being the inspired, God-breathed word. You can believe that, but then you still have the follow-up question, okay, but did the church get the right God-breathed books into our 27 books of the New Testament, right? Like, what about the collection of what the church calls the canon of the Bible? And it's interesting how this question about Nicaea comes up every so many years. I remember when I just had come to the Lord in the 80s, I read a book by Shirley MacLaine arguing the same thing. That all the books in the Bible Why got you decided. Read a book by Shirley MacLaine. It's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley MacLaine. Just, They're playing nice. Really. It was a book, all right, and I read it. And she said the same thing that the count at the Council of Nicaea, Constantine, he was the first emperor to become a Christian, uh, demanded like you got all these bishops together of the church and said you're going to vote on the books of the Bible and and actually she said and, and told them what to vote. So the, the whole thing is just you know, put together by books Constantine wanted in there in order to uh, align the church with his power as the emperor of Rome and all this sort of stuff. And that kind of died out for a while. And then Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code, and he used the same, same sort of idea. So this comes up in popular culture every so often. <clears throat> what do we what? think about this? I'd say there's two reasons why we can know that this just isn't the way that the 27 books of our New Testament happened. One, we know what was talked about at the Council of Nicaea. Happened in 325. And it wasn't talking about, or let alone voting on, what books are in the New Testament. What was was being talked about was the big thing that was dividing the church back then, which was some Christians were saying Jesus was fully divine, while other groups were saying, well, he's sort of like a super archangel, not, not fully God. And that was the debate that they were hammering out there. And the Nicene Creed came out of that. We have evidence for that. The other reason we know that this is a problem is because the 27 books of our New Testament were already, way before 325, recognized by Mediterranean churches around the whole uh, European area as the ones that God had inspired. We know this for reasons like this. 2 Peter, we have 2 Peter in our New Testament. In that text, Peter calls Paul's letters already Scripture. So this is in our own New Testament, we have someone calling the New Testament Scripture. Uh, Clement of Rome, who's for early first cen- uh, second century, knows about a collection of Paul's letters and is treating them as Scripture. 
uh, Justin Martyr, around the same time, early to mid-2nd century, is saying that every time we get together on Sunday mornings, we read, and here's this phrase, the memoirs of the apostles, what clearly become our four gospels, which Irenaeus names the four before the, the third century even starts. Origen, in uh, early third century, is talking about our 27 books. And that's before the Council of Nicaea even ever takes place. The Muratorian Canon? Muratorian Canon, another one, right around the time of Origen. Or early, even actually earlier than that, around 180 to 200. Um, so suffice to say, the 27 books we recognize as Scripture weren't voted on. They were, in fact, a very skeptical scholar, Bart Ehrman, on this topic. He's an agnostic, doesn't even believe in God. But he said, what happened with the New Testament isn't that someone proclaimed what the, what the 27 were. He says, it was a widespread consensus among the churches of the ancient world. And that was the thing. They had, they had some tests they were using. One, are all of us recognizing these inspired texts? Two, does the text either go back to an apostle or a direct associate of apostle? Someone in the first century, not second or third century. Um, three, does the uh, theology in this text align with what we know as the regular fide, the regular faith of the church, the oral tradition that had been passed on from Jesus that Paul talks about receiving and passing on? We've got to remember, this is an oral culture, and a lot of, most of the teaching was done orally. And that was the basis to be able to test documents then. So there's really solid ways to know that it wasn't the Council of Nicaea where we had these things happen. Amen and Amen. <laughs> Okay, so this person says, I'm an atheist, and my biggest problem with Christianity is the claim that there is an all-powerful God that can do anything. When you look around this messed up world, there is no evidence to support this claim. I have lots of other problems with Christianity, but this is the biggest. You just kind of have to go, yeah, sure, when someone says that a God exists. I thought about this question a little bit. Um, <laughs> You know, the thing is, when you look at this world, yeah, it's, it's got these contradictory properties. So you see this magnificent beauty, and, and there, there's all this design. Talked about that last week or the week before, or the week before that. At some point in the series, we talked <laughs> about that. The cosmic constants that have to be exactly right, and we've got 47 of them. And the odds of them being exactly right are 10 to the 40th power, each one of them. Um, and that, that, that is, it seems to me a pretty good argument for there being a designer. Uh, but at the same time, I would completely agree with this atheist that this world is massively screwed up. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a mess. Uh, it doesn't seem to be getting much better either. Um, but see, here's the thing. It, 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 I, all the messy parts of it are the results of, I, I would argue, the, of, of the fact that humans, and the Bible talks about other agents as well, angels, having free will. And we have to have free will in order to have the capacity to love. We can't be programmed to love. I mean, God could do that. But it'd be like me programming a Barbie doll to say, oh, Greg, you're such a hunk. I just love you so much. And that wouldn't be very satisfying. I just, um, and you'd have to program it for it to ever say that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Greg, you're such a hunk. Uh, God could, so God could make us automatons, and the world would be perfect in one sense. You know, we, we just think all the beautiful thoughts about God and love God and love each other and all that stuff. But it wouldn't be genuine. For it to be genuine, there has to be choice, and that means there has to be the choice not to love, and uh, that's true at an angelic cosmic level, it's true at a human level, and all of the garbage of this world is the, the result of that. Um, and so I, I, it seems to me that we've got very good reasons for believing in God. In fact, the resurrection itself is one good reason for believing in God, because uh, there's strong evidence for that. 
Uh, and then we can account for the messed upness of the world by looking at the free will of agents. Okay. I don't compliment Greg a lot. Uh, I'm trying to keep that's him true. humble. Uh, that, that's true. I but I will say. say this. He's written two books on this that are stunning. Uh, God at War and... Um, one. Satan and the Promise Satan of the Pro- And Letters from a Skeptic. Yeah, really and three. And God to Blame. He's got, okay, he's written about a dozen <laughs> books on this. <laughs> <all> right? <laughs> Get one of them. It's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. His God to Blame would be the, probably the yeah. most important one. But you dedicated to me. I did? Yes. Gee, so nice. I, I'm sure it was a meaningful moment for you <laughs> when, when you did that. Yeah. Very. As I recall, you were holding a gun to my head at the time. So I... <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Please. Both today and in the past, theologizing has been and remains the domain almost exclusively of white affluent men. How has your social location affected your theologizing? In what ways might your theological convictions be different if you were a poor black female? What blind spots might your theology have due to your social location? Mm. Wow. Greg. Well, (laughs) (laughs) this is your question. How nice of you. No, yeah, see, I just like, like, how many churches would a pastor be asked that question in public? <laughs> I, it, it's, it, that's an incredibly good question, incredibly important question. Uh, here's the thing. I can't know what my, how my theology would be different if I was a, a black female, because I'm not a black female. Uh, yeah, not, not, not even close. <laughs> no heckling in the crowd, please. Uh, so, but, but, but what I do know is that uh, I've got blind spots, uh, that, that uh, my social location and my race mean something. Uh, I, what I do know is that, that uh, I, I can have cultural myopia, and that will affect the way I read the Bible, the way I think about theology, the way I do everything. Uh, white means something. Uh, and that's all the more important to say, because in this, our cultural context, um, uh, we don't, whites don't have to be multicultural. Everyone else does, but, but we don't. And so, and the only way that you find out just how myopic your perspective is, is by bumping up against people who have different cultural and racial uh, perspectives. So uh, I can't imagine what my, my homotheology would be different if I was a black female theologian, but that's all the more reason why I need to be reading and, and engaging with black female theologians and Latino and, and it, it, non-white males. Uh, and that will broaden my perspective and enhance my, uh, you know, it will, it, will, it will just strengthen it, be able to see things I didn't see before. Uh, and, yeah, so it's a very good question and all the more important because most of the theology done in the West has been by white males who are in a privileged perspective. In fact, if anything, what we can see from church history is, you know, they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you're in a position of privilege and power, um, there will be a tendency to, to read things in a way that support your privilege and support your power. The main example of that is, is Christendom. You know, in the church, when the church inherited the power from the, in the 4th and 5th centuries, uh, started trying to help run the Roman Empire, man, their reading of the Bible changed massively. Massively. Uh, and largely to justify them being in power. And then justify them killing people and, and all sorts of things. So, so if you're in a position of privilege and power, you have to be doubly suspicious of your own myopia. Not only is it myopic, but it can be a self-serving myopia. And, and all the more reasons why you need to have diversity in your life and diversity in your the- theologizing. Would you agree with that, fellow white man? Any examples? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Any examples of 
non-white oh, yeah, female yeah, like, like, influence like, you. Yeah, it's just important to read, you know, broadly outside of your own context. So, you know, uh, Elizabeth Johnson, uh, female theologian, Nancy Murphy, does a lot of great stuff with, with science and theology. Uh, James Cone, Major Jones, uh, Drew Hart, uh, you know, just black theologians. And, and I just find that there's always stuff there that I, it wouldn't occur to me because I'm not writing from that perspective. And, uh, and it broadens you. Uh, here's a classic example, okay? Uh, for, for almost all of church history, uh, it was assumed that in, in Genesis 3, uh, that when, when, when the Lord says to Eve, uh, your desire will be towards your husband, but he will rule over you. That was taken as sort of the description of what marriage is supposed to be. And it's, it's, it's males doing the theologizing here, so it's kind of to their advantage to see it that way. I'm not saying they did it intentionally, but it's like, oh, here's a prescription for, Mary, uh, for marriage, so you're supposed to desire me, and I'm going to rule you. Great arrangement. <laughs> In the 60s, women started to uh, get into, uh, be, be allowed to be educated in theology and to be teaching theology. And there's this one female Hebrew scholar, I forget her name, but uh, she happened to notice something that hadn't been noticed up to that point. And that is that the voice of the text, in Hebrew you can have different, different voices, uh, and, and it, it, she noticed that the voice of the text was descriptive, not prescriptive. God isn't saying this is the way it's supposed to be. He's woefully declaring that because of the fall, this is how it's going to tend to be. Uh, and, and it's not that God likes it that way. Uh, no, it, but it's just the, the, the fact of the matter. And sadly, uh, marriages have kind of looked like this. Uh, the word desire there has a connotation of to manipulate. Uh, and the word to rule means to, to tyrannize. And so this beautiful design that God had, this one flesh relationship, is now going to turn into a power struggle. Uh, and the, the man's going to tend to win just because of superior strength. And that's been descriptively quite true about marriages throughout history. But it's not the way God intends it to be. And you can see that by the way Paul treats marriage in Ephesians 5, where he says, husbands and wives, submit to one another. <laughs> that's very different than Genesis 3.15. And, and then he says, husbands, since you've got the power, you take the initiative and you do it by laying it down and serve your wife as Christ did the church. And then, wife, you respond uh, the same way the church does to Christ. Uh, with her love over by your sacrificial service. So we need other voices, uh, other eyes on the text and, and uh, other people doing the theologizing. Amen. Amen. I'll just say, too, as a white and by global standards, certainly uh, a fluent male who does theology, uh, amen to all of this. What, I'm, what helps me remember that uh, and be thankful for the Lord that I follow is that uh, the texts that I call scripture come out of not a North Atlantic white affluent context, but a Middle Eastern context, a, a movement by a man who went not to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the political elite, but went to the fishermen and uh, the, the, the peasants of his culture, and who included women from the beginning in scandalous ways. Uh, in Luke uh, 8, Jesus is talking about Jesus moving town to town as he's preaching. And who's on the road with him isn't just the 12 men that's following him, but a group of women, some of whom had some demons cast out of them. One is Joanna, who's the wife of some guy who's back tending to Pilate's affairs, and she's his wife, but she's on the road with Jesus. Just scandalous stuff. But Jesus is showing us a very different place from which he, when God enters history, he enters into a place that's not populated by white affluent males. It's it's a very different place. People at the margins. Challenges people like Greg and I all the time. Amen. 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 
Great if, question. Yeah. yeah great, great question. Really good questions. If some of the Bible's teachings are just cultural, how do we determine what to follow today and what to consider historical context or cultural accommodation? Mm. Key question. Key question. Would you like to take? All right. Um, How about I don't want to monopolize. You don't want to? I don't want to monopolize. Good. That's good. That's humble of you. Um, I'm always humble. It's part of my Okay, Greg, let me answer the question. <laughs> there's, there's some principles. Why this is key, among other reasons, is it's one thing to say the Bible's the word of God and we trust it. Like, that's our book. But it's another thing to, to ask the question, okay, so how do we interpret it with regard to tough questions, particularly questions that can divide the church, right? And so... Um, Greg and I teach a course at Bethel together pretty regularly, uh, God, Evil, and Spiritual Warfare. And among other things, that course is designed to help students learn to interpret the Bible with, with these sorts of questions. Here's five principles that Greg and I each year propose to our students to help with this question. And the question again is this, when you run into a teaching of scripture, particularly on ethical issues, or portrait, or, or God, or portrait of God, or practices in the church, or beliefs, um, how do you know whether what you're reading is a, a, a transcultural truth, meaning it transcends culture. It's for all cultures, for all people, all times. It's a universal truth. Or whether it's an application to a specific culture, particular time, particular place, and not something you should make universal for, for all times and places. Really important question. Here's, I think, five tests we can generally use for this sort of thing, and I'll give you an, anal an example of how they work with each of them. Um, test one, is the teaching you're reading consistent through the entire Bible, Old to New Testament, uh, Gospels to uh, historical literature to other genres, is there consistency? One reason you want to use that test is because the Bible itself has different cultures in it. It's written over a span of 1,500 years, different nations. So you already have a, a multicultural book. If you see something that's similarly taught, it's not the only test, but it's a good test to start with. This might be a universal principle. So. For example, at Woodland Hills, uh, why don't we take the text in 1 Timothy that, where Paul says, um, I do not let allow women to teach or hold authority over men in any of my churches. Because Paul does say that in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2. And I've had my students ask me, uh, why, you know, your church doctor, do you allow women preachers? 1 Timothy 2 says. And here's a principle I use. I said, well, that does say that. But there's other places in Scripture that clearly have women stepping into roles of leadership and teaching in contexts where men are, are subjected to that. And so uh, from uh, you know, the Old Testament, we have Huldah the prophetess who's speaking not just to women, or to Miriam, uh, Aaron's and, and Moses' sister, who writes part of the Bible, uh, part of Exodus 15, which unless you want to say that part of the Bible doesn't apply to men, then parts of the Bible written by women apply to men. Um, all the way to Paul, who is the one who says, I don't let women do that, tells us in Romans chapter 16 that one of the women in, in his entourage named Junius is an apostle, the highest uh, capacity role and gifting in the church. So in other words, even Paul apparently makes um, uh, exceptions to his general principle. Now you might ask the question, why was there a general principle? I would argue because in that cultural context, of ancient Greco-Roman world, women were afforded very little, if any, educational opportunities. Men were generally the ones who could read and therefore read scriptural texts. So yeah, if you're in a context where women can't read and only a small percentage of men can, 
probably that's a generally good principle. Think Afghanistan, for example. Okay. But Paul right. himself violates his own principle when he finds a woman who apparently does know the scriptures, does know about Jesus and trusts her to teach, like Junius, like uh, Phoebe and others that he mentions. Plus, it, it, there's so much else about 2 Timothy, that, that passage where it, it, that it, everyone acknowledges it's culturally relative. Greg, you're stepping says, up my answer here. Let's well, stop right there. They shouldn't have braided hair. They shouldn't wear right. jewelry. They shouldn't wear Principle number apparel, two. And they shouldn't teach men. And Principle number two. The first three are relative, but also the fourth one's supposed to be absolute. I mean, come on. Paul, okay, Thank sorry. You. Principle number two. If you notice a change in meaning from one culture to another, Greg's example this gave, Paul says, just before women can't teach, he says this, no women, no braided hair, no jewelry, no costly clothes. That's what I just said. Thank you. <laughs> now I'm attaching it to a principle. Do we have, do you ever notice at Woodland Hills, braid, costly apparel, or jewelry police at the front door? <laughs> I hope your answer is no. Because we don't think that what braids and jewelry meant in Paul's cultural context mean what they do today. That was common way of signaling a sexually loose woman who was probably associated with the, with the uh, profession of prostitution. Paul's warning Christian women, don't be, mis don't be confused with people in your culture that are associated with prostitution. But that braids don't mean that in our cultural context. So things can change meaning. We have to be aware of that. Uh, principle three, I call it the, uh, the mustard seed principle. There can be things that Jesus plants as a seed that don't flower and sprout for some time. This is how we can deal with texts on slavery, I would argue, in the New Testament. Does Paul say, slaves obey your masters? Yes. Did white slaveholders use that in, in terrible ways? Yes, they did. Because they did not, not recognize that the same Paul who said that also wrote a book called Philemon in which he encouraged a slaveholder to treat his slave as a brother and actually let him go free and follow uh, and help Paul in the ministry. In other words, Paul can't take the entire Mediterranean slavery system on in his first generation, but he can start to plant seeds in people in the church where that eventually flowers and takes over so that we see that liberation is actually what God's heart is. And these kind of principles can really be helpful in, in asking what's for today, what's simply a cultural context or a thing. Now, that was three. Here's two more. Which covenant is in? Always pay attention to that. And is it Christocentric? Does it come in Jesus' teachings or outside? Two other lenses that are really helpful for this. I have a feeling we're not going to get through, uh, our goal is to get through 10. And I kind of doubt it. But I these mean, are such good questions. Yeah, I mean, they are, they are really good questions. They, they questions take time. And we appreciate you guys taking the time to be thorough. So that's lovely. Make sure that you, you uh, at some point, uh, look at the other two services because we all had all sorts of questions there that we're not going to get to in this one. So right. want to be informed. So we have a follow-up question to that question. Right. I was raised with the belief that homosexuality was wrong because the Bible tells me so. Everyone just leaned forward all of a sudden. That's <laughs> <laughs> but what if the Bible's view of, of homosexuality is just an early revelation that is incorrect? How can we know if the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is a truth for all time or mm. just a cultural application for the ancient world? Good question. I suppose since... You to answer the first one, I should answer the second one. All right. All right. Um, all right look, at, for, first thing I always feel I need to do when you're talking about homosexuality, uh, gay marriages, or whatever, is uh, for straight Christians to apologize uh, before you say anything. Because the church, throughout most of its history, has scapegoated gay folks. 
uh, and, and excluded them and you know, made that the sin par excellence while winking at a bunch. And the craziest thing, it had nothing to do with the Bible. The Bible actually has very, very little to say about it, some to say about it, but, but not much. But the stuff that the church has never really tried to crack down on, there's a lot on there, like gossip and idolatry and greed and gluttony and things like that. Uh, but you know, they say that in this part of the fallen world, every, every social system has to define itself over and against something. And we decided to make the over against gay folks. And, and for that, um, we have to say sorry. Uh, really. Okay, so now on, on the question, as to the question, as we understand it, you know, Paul talked about the, the timeless principle and is it consistent throughout Scripture? And uh, as we read the Bible, uh, we can't deny that God's ideal for marriage, it seems to be pretty consistent, in fact, very consistent throughout Scripture. His ideal was for a man and a woman to be in a lifelong covenant together and to have only one sexual partner throughout your entire life. That was his ideal. What we also find throughout the Bible is this, however, that uh, we live in, in fact, we're born into a broken world. In fact, we're all born broken in different ways. Some people, it's manifested physically. Other people, it's psychologically. Uh, all of us are to some degree jaded spiritually. Um, and, and, and that's just the fact. It's, it's, this is the true dimension of original sin. You're not born guilty, but you are born broken, all of us. And, and the New Testament makes it very clear that we're never to judge someone else's brokenness as being worse than our own brokenness. If anything, we're supposed to reverse that and consider our brokenness to be the, 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 like a, a, a tree trunk coming out of our eyes. And anyone else's brokenness is a, a dust particle by comparison. Uh, it, it's, it's the collapse judgment and to stay humble. And, and what we find throughout Scripture is that when people couldn't, couldn't uh, when the ideal wasn't feasible um, in, in terms of marriage, God was willing to set aside the ideal and meet the people where they're at. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, there's in the ancient world a shortage of men because they're getting killed off in war, and, and the options for women and children uh, without a male provider in the ancient world were very grim. And, and so God saw that it's better to bend his ideal to meet the folks where they're at. It's more loving to do that than, than it is for, to see women and children starving on the street. And so he allowed for polygamy. And then at a certain time, he bends even further and allows for this thing where they had concubines, uh, where it wasn't even official marriage, but they still sired children uh, 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 with a man. And then he bent further and allowed for divorce and, and even allows for remarriage, uh, even though technically that, that's adultery, Jesus says, because it, it, it breaks the, God's ideal of having one sexual partner for life. So, so God's, we see this God who accommodates, and the supreme accommodation, of course, is the cross, where God enters into solidarity with the sin of the entire world. Um, so the question then is, is, is can, can God accommodate gay marriages, and should the church accommodate gay marriages? Um, and it's an it's a, it's a issue, I'll tell you this, that the pastors uh, of Woodland Hills Church have been, have been discussing and, and dialoguing about, wrestling with for some time. Um, I'll just say this, that... Uh, we, we've got uh, some gay families coming to Woodland Hills Church, and I thank God for them. And, and does anyone think it would be loving to tell these folks, this family, to split apart and leave the kids without, you know, two parents? Uh, I, I, I don't see that that would be uh, the, the loving thing to do. But, but it, it, it's the thing that we're in process on. But maybe the most important thing I would say about this, we're not going to get through to 10 questions, but, <laughs> but, but here's the thing. 
as so much else in our culture, this has become politicized and polarized and divisive and toxic and, and, and ugly. Um, and, and people just fight and they don't listen to each other. They don't talk to each other. In the kingdom, it's got to be different than that. Amen? Uh, in the kingdom, look, we're in process. We're in process. And, and, and there's room for, for, for differences of opinion here. And the most important thing is that, and Paul says, whatever you do, it's got to be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. And if, if, if ever, you know, you're winning an argument is more important than loving the person in front of you, do the kingdom a favor and shut up. I always say that. Just shut up. Uh, it's got to be done in love. And so this, this is, like so many other churches, we're in, we're in process on this. And, and, but what, how we go about dialoguing about this is, is more important than, than the conclusion we end up with. And so we want to be respectful and, and honoring the uh, difference of opinion that people have on this as we continue to discern God's will on this. Amen. 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 This one maybe shouldn't take so long. <laughs> I, I wouldn't bet on that one. <laughs> what came first, the chicken or the egg? Oh, there you go. Oh, I've never understood that's profound. Why this is, it's obviously the chicken, right? Paul, you're an idiot. You couldn't have a chicken without an egg. So it's, it's the egg, obviously. Dude, where's the egg going to come from if there's no chicken? Well, where's the chicken going to come from if there's no egg? What did this, the it was, big it was, egg explosion? Yeah, what? it was the original Big Bang. There was the egg. It eternally existed. Finally, there. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> we'll pray about this and get back to you on that. Did someone really ask that? Oh, my gosh. They really did. Yeah. Sticking to the script. All right. Uh, if God models acceptance toward the worst of people and situations, are we called to accept possibly abusive relationships? Does no. accepting people as they are mean we may be called to a difficult relationship? Do I have too high of standards for wanting to hold out for a future spouse who is a healthy, non-addicted person? Or just as the Bible is flawed, does this mean I too should be willing to accept a flawed relationship? Mm. Oh, look, it's one thing to accept a flawed relationship. Every relationship's going to be flawed because yeah. we live in a broken world and there's not a marriage around that isn't in some respects broken. Uh, if you have two broken people getting married, you're going to have brokenness. So yeah, flawed is one thing. But, and, and, and look, at, we are to accept people as they are. We love everyone as they are because God loves everyone as they are, including, including abusers. But to love them as they are doesn't mean you let them abuse you. Uh, you, love, you. You love yourself, too, and, and uh, you've got to reflect that, that worth um, uh, by, by, by what you do in this relationship. And, and so if, if there is physical uh, abuse or even extreme psychological abuse going on, there can come a point where you've got to distance yourself from that. You're not helping the person by staying in an abusive relationship because you're communicating to them that, that this is an appropriate way to, to treat you and you're conveying that you are worth being treated this way. Uh, you, you have to manifest your unsurpassable worth even as you love them, but that doesn't mean uh, it, it, you know, you're actually harming them if you're, you're going, allowing them to do this. There, there can come a point where you have to separate and you do it out of love. It's like I, I have to, it's, it's tough love. Um, that if all of the means have, have failed to correct this behavior, you show them how serious you are by, by separating from them. Now, I wouldn't just write off the marriage and say, okay, now I got to you know, trade up. Uh, you want to give God space to be working in their life and, and trying to restore this. Restoration is always the goal. But, but uh, uh, loving the person does not mean, and accepting the person doesn't mean that you subject yourself to, to that kind of a treatment. As some people have said, well, Jesus was self-sacrificial. But see, and, and, and he allowed himself to be abused for our, our, on our behalf. 
But see, it's one thing, it's one thing, he, he chose that. Uh, he, he did that. It's like jumping in front of a car to save somebody, you know, push them out of the way. It, it, that's loving when you choose it. But if you're just subjected to this, uh, there's nothing loving about, about letting someone treat you like that. Yeah. When you talked about Jesus, you said either his followers were liars or the whole thing was a legend. But couldn't his followers have been duped? There have been charismatic cult leaders throughout history who fooled people into thinking crazy yeah. things, even to the point where the followers were willing to die for the cause. Ah, Jesus was. That's true. A duper. You have the Jim Jones uh, of the Jesus, 70s. Jesus was, was a super duper. <laughs> Never mind. It, yeah. just, it just came to me. I couldn't help it. I, I, <laughs> my meds start wearing off in second Dick service. To the so I'm like, who knows what's going to come on next? <laughs> the question. The question was. Good question. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, that's a problem, right? Whether it's uh, the Jim Jones, Guyana thing, or the, the David Koresh Waco thing, people with charismatic powers and um, a following can do really crazy things, including leading their followers to death. Is Jesus just po po possibly an example of that? Um, you know, C.S. Lewis, when he formulated the famous trilemma, um, Lord, liar, lunatic. He was applying all those three possibilities to Jesus, not just his disciples. So Lewis was asking the question, um, was G is Jesus Lord, who he, said, who he seems to say he was, or was Jesus lying, meaning duping people, kind of being a, a charismatic, uh, corrupt leader, or was Jesus believing everything that he thought, but he was just insane? And so that, that, that liar question can be applied to Jesus himself, not just his disciples. What's interesting about that option is that of all the three options people, skeptical scholars, have, when they consider this question, that's the one that people least go to, is that Jesus was like trying to really pull one over on everybody. Um, it's fascinating to read, all the, even atheists and skeptics who don't, aren't Christian, very few of them will look at the person of Jesus in the Gospels and go, he was a bad guy. There's just something about his teachings his central uh, calling to love, to self-sacrifice. You might be able to convince yourself he was just mistaken or that he you know, was insane, though there's good reasons to think that's not true either. But the last thing you go to is here's a guy trying to what? Like make money off of people? He walked around in poverty, had no place to live, and ends up dying on a cross. He didn't seem to get much out of this if that was all it was about. So um, I've rarely heard anyone try to make a case that Jesus was a bad guy. The, the only one I remember is Bertrand Russell. He was an early 20th century atheist. And he, he had an a essay, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he, one of his reasons were Jesus wasn't a good guy. And his two arguments were, uh, one, well, he believed in hell. And, and that's a bad thing. And two, uh, he sent a bunch of pigs over a cliff and killed them all. And that wasn't kind to animals. That was his two arguments for why, why Jesus, and Jesus didn't do guy. that. The demons did. The that. demons did do that. That's right. So. No, usually you don't have either madmen because you know, Jesus did go around saying, "If you see me, you see the Father. I've come down from heaven and 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 put himself in a position as being God." Uh, and so, that if you didn't have other reasons to think he was he, he was telling the truth, he'd be classified as a madman. But but. Mad, mad people, people who are insane, and people who are charlatans and evil don't usually create an ethical system that's, that, that, that it becomes the most influential uh, teachings in, in all of history. Uh, and and you know, you talk about loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you. And, 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 you know. and then on, on top of that, how 
If he's pulling off tricks and whatever, uh, how do you fake the crucifixion and the empty tomb? That's, that, that, that'd be a good one. I mean, you know, Chris Angel would have trouble with that one, I would think. So he just doesn't, it doesn't fit the character uh, that we see in the Gospels. So why did it take so long for the information in the Bible to be written down and documented? Because there's a lot of it. <laughs> uh, I think we got to remember, and anytime we ask any question about the ancient world, the biblical world, we got to remember that unlike our, our culture, it was a, do, a dominantly oral culture. You know, uh, William Harris, who's probably done the best work on... Uh, Explain what that means. So yeah, uh, that most people are not literate, and therefore most information is not passed through texts, but oral tradition. And... Um, Best estimates for the uh, literacy rates of the Greco-Roman Empire at Jesus' time are 3% to, at the highest, 15% in certain sectors. So wherever you go, uh, the dominant populace is illiterate. They cannot pick up a text and read it. So everything hinges on oral memory, oral teaching, and oral tradition passing on. Um, And that's certainly the case with Jesus and his folks. Because in, in Jesus' peasant culture where he worked, he wasn't working with elite people and religious leaders, probably his people would be more on the 3% literacy than the 15%. And so um, we actually have an, an ancient text, a Christian text, saying that it wasn't until the early eyewitnesses, Jesus' actual 12 followers and some of the women who were with him, until they started dying, started losing the witnesses, that they realize we better start writing down what these people said. Because while they're alive, they still bear witness everywhere they go, remembering and telling it orally. But once the eyewitnesses start dying, now you got to preserve it for posterity. And interestingly, the time we start seeing these texts being written is between the 50s to the 90s in the first century. When that, that last generation, where Paul's writing his letters, and then the other uh, apostles are starting to die, Peter, etc. And so it makes sense about... Uh, the timing on this. But let's also say this. To have texts written within 100 years of an event in the ancient world, and we possess those texts today, is a really short time period in the ancient world. That's, it's, it's remarkable, really. See, I, I would have given a different answer to that question. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with all that. But one thing about God is that, you know, so God with God, you know, a, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years a day. He doesn't measure time the way we do. And if you've been living for all eternity, any amount of time is infinitesimally small, right? Uh, so, so it seems like a long time to us is, is, is not, it, it's a blink of an eye with God. And, and so from our perspective, God never seems to be much in a hurry. Uh, and he uses this mustard seed principle. He starts, he always starts small and then he, you know, he, 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 he grows it. And so he starts with, with Abraham, his first covenant partner, and then he, you know, then he, has a, he builds up a, a people and a nation, tries to you know, teach them. And, and it's a long, slow process, but for God, it's just like that. You know, so so he, he just seems to take his time. Same thing with uh, if you believe that God used evolution to, to create human beings. Some people think, well, why would God take such a long period of time to create humans? Well, it's not, it's not, it's not a long time to him. It, it, it's an instantaneous thing. So it seems to me to actually fit the way God usually does things. Thank you. After last week's sermon, I have the question of why we should trust any passage in the Bible, since any particular passage may turn out to be an example of human imperfection and error. I think Greg would say that we should trust the Bible because Jesus trusted it, but that doesn't help us know whether any certain passage is an instance of human weakness and error. 
Oh, it, by the way, if you weren't here for that sermon, this, that may strike you as pretty like, what? <laughs> I encourage you to go back and listen to the message from last week. Because uh, like, he's been said there's flaws and errors and stuff like that. Um, and I don't have the time to repeat the whole message here. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very good question. Here's the short answer that I give, because we've got to give short answers here. Um, that... Uh, the, 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 the way that you assess anything as being error or not is, is does it conflict with what you, you know to be true? So if, if you lock in that Jesus Christ, and especially Jesus Christ crucified, is the full definitive revelation of God, that becomes the criteria by which you assess uh, the degree to which uh, the Spirit broke through the hard-heartedness of his people and could reveal himself as he actually is, and the degree to which he had to stoop to bear the sin, to stay in solidarity with them, and, 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 and thereby take on an appearance in Scripture that mirrors the way they think about him, the fallen way that they think about him. So there's criteria for that. Uh, and the same is true for assessing other kind of errors. Um, we know that the earth isn't held up by pillars, so I'm pretty sure that the passages that describe the earth as being held up by pillars, that's a culturally relative thing. Uh, and so we, we've got some real you know, criteria about that. Um, and, and in the end, uh, I would hold that the Bible, it follows from Jesus and his trust in the Bible that we can trust the Bible to infallibly accomplish what God wants to do with the Bible, which Jesus himself tells us is ultimately to point people to him uh, and especially to his sufferings on the cross. Uh, if we trust the Bible for that purpose, it will infallibly lead us in the right direction. If you impose any other agenda on it, uh, trying to find an accurate science or whatever, it's going to, I think, tend to lead you astray. So trust the Bible for what God breathed it to do, and you're, you're, you're in, in a safe zone. Last question. Last Final question. question? Final question. And they've all been so good. Thank they, you guys really, again. Man, they these really, are, these have. are good questions. Yeah, really good questions. Just love them. All right. So the Bible says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I am a devoted follower of Jesus, yet I still suffer from terrible anxiety, almost as bad as before I became a Christian. And one of the things I'm most anxious about is that maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit, because if I did, I wouldn't be so anxious. Any advice mm. would be greatly appreciated. Mm. I'd, like to, I'd like, to like to close with this one. Yeah. Um, oh, my heart goes out to this person. Um, I, I, I want to first reassure you that that uh, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be a believer. Uh, the Bible teaches us that, that we, we don't believe just on our basis of our own smarts or anything. Uh, the Holy Spirit has to be at work uh, to, to open up our heart and open up our mind. Uh, and, and we have the ability to yield to that or to suppress it. But if you believe in Jesus, uh, then you've yielded to the Spirit. And so the fact that you're a believer, I, I want to assure you that one of the things you don't have to be anxious about is that... Um, and I would encourage you to even imagine that. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the power of God. And, 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 and just imagine that. That's a reality. And take that on faith. Whatever you're feeling, take that on faith. The thing is, is that, you see, the Bible says we're body, soul, and, and spirit. Um, it's, the word soul there is suke in Greek. We get the word psyche from it. And so it has to do with the, your, your, your mind and your, the, the kind of your, your, your experience, personality, how you experience the world. And, and when you submit, when you submit uh, to, to, to Jesus Christ as Lord, because you've been open to the Holy Spirit, um, your spirit, which is the core of who you are, your spirit is transformed. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Uh, and all the things the Bible says about you are true. That, that, that's the core of your being is now in Christ Jesus, seated with Christ in heavenly places, and blessed with every spiritual blessing. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And, and, and you're holy and blameless, and you're loved with the same love that the Father has for the Son. All that is true about you. But it's true for all of us that what's not automatically transformed is our mind. 
mm-hmm. and how we experience ourselves and how we experience the world, uh, our, our brain continues to run on the autopilot of the past. And one of the main jobs of discipleship is to begin to take that, that, that damaged brain that we, we have and start to bring it into alignment with the truth of who we are in Christ. But that means you've got to trust the, the word of God more than you trust your experience. Because your experience can be all messed up. Um, and, 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 and so in faith, just and, and you ask for advice. I, I would advise this. I mean, I assume if you have a pervasive, strong anxiety disorder, you, you, you look into some professional help for that because that can help. Uh, possibly it it's, could be the result of, of the brain firing in different ways. Our brains are high, like everything else in the body, you know, it, 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 uh, uh, it, it, it's designed for a certain function. If something's off, it's not going to operate right, right? But it, the brain is so chemically sensitive that some anxiety can come about just because the brain's not producing the right, too much of one kind of chemical, chemical too little of, of the other. So look into that. But beyond that, uh, here's, here's what we know is that anxiety, if it's not just a chemical reaction in the brain, it's a result, in fact, all of our feelings are the result of what we're doing between our ears, uh, what we're seeing, what we're hearing. Uh, and, and we do it so fast at one three thousandth of a second that, that we're not even usually aware that we're doing it. But what we see and what we hear and the, the scripts that we're, we're running in our brain, they create feelings in us. We experience them as real and it creates feelings in us. Anxiety and fear is the result of running worst case scenarios. You, you, you're living in what might happen and it's bad. And so there's, there, there's fear there. It, it's possible worst case scenarios could happen, but they're usually unlikely. They usually don't pan out. But I would encourage you to in, be intentional in prayer and then throughout the day on running best case scenarios. Uh, here's one best case scenario, that you are destined to become uh, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And, and though you maybe your brain in this broken world doesn't experience it now, uh, everything the Bible says is true about you is true about you. Uh, I think we have a sheet on that in the help area if you want to find out some of the things the Bible says is true about you. And so I encourage you to imagine that and see yourself. What do you look like when you're walking around filled with the Spirit and, and you're, you're manifesting the joy and the peace and the love of God and, and, and you're, you're convinced you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you and, and, and all of that. What, what do you look like? Now your brain will say oh, you're, that you're just making that up. And it, it will say that because anytime we think a new thought that's outside of the, the, our normal thing, it feels unreal. What feels real to us is the way we've always thought. But I encourage you to press through that and on authority of God's word, see yourself. Just even run scenarios in particular situations in your life. I encourage you to, to run scenarios where you're, you're facing the kind of things that usually activate, activate anxiety. But, but know that Jesus is with you. But even see Jesus alongside of you and, and see yourself walking in your identity in Christ. I would encourage you to run this best case scenario, uh, that Jesus wins in the end, and it's going to be wonderful, it's going to be glorious, it's going to be spectacular. This has a happy ending. Amen. Uh, and and, and be, run it concretely and vivid in full color, and, and I would encourage you to do that regularly. This thing turns out glorious, just see that. And that doesn't take away all the other little concerns, but it sure puts them in perspective. I sometimes will uh, zoom forward uh, 10,000 years and me and Jesus are sitting on the couch and, and we're looking back at the mess I'm in right now that's causing so much anxiety. And I just imagine us laughing our heads off because it's so small and you thought it was so big. And then take the, the, the kind of the, the joy and the peace that you have there, the perspective that you have there 10,000 years from now, and then bring it back into the present. Why wait till then to start enjoying it? <laughs> uh, we, 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 this is our inheritance now, you know, it's, we inherited that. Amen. 
And, 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 and doing things like that can do a lot to, to help putting uh, that, that kind of anxiety in order. And final thing I'll say is that it always helps to be in community with people. Yeah. Uh, n- n- not go through this alone. Um, uh, have other people there who are there to remind you about your identity in Christ and there to give you a broader perspective and, and, and to walk with you through the things that, that, that produce anxiety in your life. Um, and and I, I would be always getting prayer, uh, but, but include a warfare prayer in this because there is an agent out there that likes to paralyze all of us with fear. Yep. But we have authority over him in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 Would you stand? Amen. Hey, I, again, want to just say I'm so appreciative of this environment and the freedom that we have in Christ and the, the ability to think and ask questions and to learn and to grow together. Uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, maybe you have an anxiety disorder or whatever it may be, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and are not a, a surrendered follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to seriously consider becoming one. And if you want to find out more about that, these folks up here would love to explain to you what it is to, be, to become a follower of Jesus. So as we leave this place, can we do it as, with a commitment to worshiping God by thinking, being a thoughtful people, and by being submitted to our Lord and reflecting his love to all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen.